0: How do we keep our fantasy baseball lives in balance with everything else? I'll ask Vlad Sedler about that and a whole lot more, next on Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. (laughs) And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt.
0: And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 2nd. It's show number 19 of the 2023 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davich, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have a two-part feature expert interview with Vlad Sedler, the fab whisperer at FTN Fantasy and co-host of the FTN Fantasy Baseball podcast. In part one, we'll discuss how to fit a busy fantasy baseball workload into even busier real-world living and his strategies and tactics for his competitive team in the NFBC main event. Then, later in Part 2, Vlad and I will talk about his methods for fab management, how to manage personal biases, and he'll have his boons and banes for this weekend's fab. And we'll have our weekly fantasy news update with Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com looking at American League hitters including Baltimore outfielder Cedric Mullins, Detroit outfielder Riley Green, and a new set of Angels in the outfield. And we'll discuss some American League pitchers, including Boston left-hander Chris Sale, Detroit left-hander Eduardo Rodriguez, and Yankees right-hander Domingo Herman. Then we'll head to the National League with hitter news, including Cubs shortstop Dansby Swanson, Cincinnati shortstop Matt McLean, and Milwaukee outfielder Jesse Winker. And finally, we'll have National League pitcher news, including Philadelphia right-hander Aaron Nola, the possible instability coming to the Colorado bullpen, and a new modus operandi for San Francisco right-hander Logan Webb. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the guys at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon looks at Reds shortstop prospect Ellie De La Cruz in the frequent flyer baseball hq analyst alex becky looks at atlanta right-handed starter a.j smith Shaver, and in extra innings i'll be talking about my reverse lima plan pitching staff it's another big friday full edition thanks for joining us at baseball hq radio hey what do you say vlad sedler's in the house we're gonna talk some baseball And in the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Vlad Sedler, the fab whisperer at FTN Fantasy and co-host of the FTN Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Vlad, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you so much for having me, PD. Always a pleasure to talk to you. My, uh,
2: my, my annual visit with you.
0: Well, it should be more frequent than that. I, I guess one of these years I'm going to have to get more shows going because uh, so many interesting people in our community to talk to. And, of course, you're up there at the top of that list. Uh, how many leagues are you playing this year, and how are your teams doing so far?
2: It's a mix. Uh, I have about 30 fantasy leagues. Uh, I would say 10 of them are fab leagues. And I told myself I would not do that many this year after doing 12 last year. Uh, I used to do five to seven Fab Leagues, and that usually was enough, but 10 is a handful. It's definitely tough, and uh, it's a mix. It, it's really a mix. I have uh, some some main events that are not doing so well. I have one main event that's doing very well. My Super Auction does is doing pretty good, and my 12-team OCs are a nice mix. I, I think uh, the good thing with that format is enough folks uh, sort of drop out as they start prepping for football or feel like they're out of it, so that's kind of when I, I make my moves.
0: Yeah, I was talking about that with a couple of other guys over the last few weeks about the importance of being aware that there are going to be guys in your leagues who stop playing. And that's an opportunity if you decide that you want to keep playing. Of course, some of them are doing it for good reasons, you know, we all have limited amount of time and probably if you've got a number of teams, you want to focus on the ones that are doing well and maybe drop the ones or take less interest in the ones that aren't doing so well. But you mentioned that one of your main event teams is is doing well. It's in the top 10% of the overall uh, about 1150 points behind the overall leader, Steve Meyer, I noticed the other day, which seems like a lot, but actually it isn't given the uh, number of categories and the number of teams. I think you were at about 85% of his total, so you could make that move. I see teams gaining or losing hundreds of points every day. So at this stage of the season, a little more than a third of the season in the books, what are your aspirations for this team in a very tough overall race with very tough competitors? but an interesting situation for you. I would say I'm definitely
2: looking to to win the league. Um, of course, uh, the team being up there, I would love for it to make a run in the overall. I think it's too early to be able to, to think about that. Uh, the interesting part is some of my teams that are 11th, 12th place, I kind of liked the structure of those teams better. Uh, and uh, this one ended up with uh, several players that, this was my my last main event. It was my last draft. It was the night before the season started. So it was my FOMO draft in many ways, my, my fear of missing out draft. And so landed a few players that I hadn't uh, gotten earlier. Um, you know, Taylor Ward was a big target of mine going into the preseason. Obviously, that's uh, still up for discussion how that's going to end up playing out. But I did not get any Taylor Ward on any main event. So I made sure to get him here. Uh, the, and this team has just been blessed with some really good fortune. I think that's one case right there. Uh, Taylor Ward's been been ice cold lately. I did sit him last week when I could, uh, but I was planning to sit him again this week. And then Charlie Blackman hits the uh, bereavement list, I believe it was. And so that gave me the opportunity to pop in Taylor Ward's got a couple home runs this week. And just little things like that, just things going really well for this team. You know, you had my only Sean Murphy, I got him at like a max pick. I think it was like 155. It was was pretty amazing. Uh, And then Nico Horner, just, I mean, I definitely did not have such uh, aspirations for him. Uh, And this is my only Nico Horner share, and he's been doing really well. So, uh, so far, so good. I like the the structure, and this is a team where I'll be getting hopefully uh, Carlos Rodon uh, and Aaron Savali back, uh, as well as AJ Puck.
0: And getting those injured players back, of course, is a huge thing. Uh, winning your individual league, you mentioned you're, you're in first place in that league, and it pays uh, seven thousand dollars, which is the same prize as finishing twelfth in the overall. Uh, second place in an individual league pays about half that, thirty five hundred, I think, which is about the equivalent of seventeenth, eighteenth spot. Are in first place in your league, I think the last time I looked by 14 points or so, how do you split your attention and more importantly, your tactical planning between playing to win the league, which has that nice payoff and playing for the overall, which has a much bigger payoff, but has a lot more competitors between you and the big payoff. Uh, then the overall, that is my
2: ultimate goal. That's, that's what I want to do. Uh, you know, one main event leagues in the past, but I obviously would like to win more. And of course, uh, seven grand is, is no drop in the in the bucket. I would absolutely love to take that down, but uh, definitely not looking to rest on my laurels whatsoever. Uh, and really make sure that I compete and and stay balanced in this league, uh, f- uh, in order to try to win it. The overall categories I'm not looking at yet for this team. I'm not really looking at the overall. Uh, I think I was 21st last I looked. Uh, but yes, I mean, just so many good things have to continue to happen. Little other fortunes of, of good luck, like, like Carlos Rodon coming back and being dominant would be fantastic. Uh, being able to, uh, be able to ride the Jose Siri wave throughout the rest of the season and Josh Lowe, I would love for both of those guys to continue to, uh, to crush it. That was kind of my theme going into the draft this season. It's kind of why I got off to a good start as I was really heavy on the Tampa Bay Rays offense. I don't think myself or anyone in their wildest dreams assumed it would, uh, go to this level, but so far just having so many rays uh, splattered throughout all my teams has been a real boot.
0: Among them, Josh Lowe, you, you drafted him uh, one of this year's breakouts actually, but uh, I noticed uh, he was on your bench for a, at least a little while and you cost you a couple of home runs, a couple of bags. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when and why you put Josh Lowe on your bench? I do.
2: It was a day, it was a week where the first game of the, of the uh, series was against the righty, but he was sitting anyways. And then I saw a lefty coming up in that period as well. It was like three games. And uh, I set him. And uh, that was my last time doing that um, because I've noticed a little trend. I know there's there's nothing sticky about this trend whatsoever. But whenever a Ray that I have on my roster, that whenever I bench them, because they're they're actually benched in the first half of the week, they end up crushing um, the rest of the weekend. It, it happened with me with Isaac, per, uh, Isaac Perides last weekend. Uh, he wasn't playing on a Friday. I sat him. Uh, I think on Saturday, he, uh, he had four RBIs and a home run. It just kind of seems to be like a theme. So I think it's just like you, you set and forget those uh, those races, unless it's like Manny Margot, obviously. <laughs> you don't always have to play him, but I think no. everyone else is uh, lock and
0: load. That's an interesting point because we talk a lot of when we're looking at our pitchers and uh, to our prospects at the organization. And we think, well, that's a really solid organization. They know what they're doing. I'm going to keep an extra eye on this prospect or I may start this pitcher in what looks like an unfavorable situation or a less favorable situation. But now it's starting to look like we can think that way about the organizations as far as how they deploy their hitters because at a certain point we trust that Tampa's not starting their hitters because they have no better ideas. They always have better ideas, but they're doing it anyway. And uh, there comes a point when how much can we just trust the organization to make the right decisions about our players on our behalf, as it were.
2: It's true. Yeah. And that's a, that's the perfect example of it. And sometimes you just got to roll with it. And when we understand that Josh Lowe isn't really playing against lefties and there will come a period when the Rays might be facing three lefties. So that might be an opportunity where I would most easily bench uh, Josh Lowe. But other, other than that, otherwise I'm usually starting a guy like that all the time.
0: On the other side of the coin, you have the angels who seem to make one Well, suspicious decision after another. I'll just say that to be kind. Uh, Anthony Rendon was surrounded with question marks coming into draft season, especially with the injury situation. But you took the chance, and actually, you were being rewarded. Rendon was doing well, but injury bug again, groin strain on May 15th. I think he went on the IL. Unfortunately for you, that was a Monday, so he probably cost you at least those four days. It looks like he stayed on your active roster. Why haven't you benched or didn't you bench Rendon, and what are you looking for down the road with him?
2: Yeah, that's a case of uh, of having too many teams and not planning correctly. And then, um, uh, basically, I don't have a backup third baseman, and he was coming off the IL, uh, but he was just kind of taking grounders on Monday. I figured he might miss Monday, maybe Tuesday, and I would still get a couple of days out of him. So I was I was not very active in making sure that I had someone some coverage there, and uh, I have Jin Segura as my middle infielder there, who has, uh, you know, second and third base eligibility. So my plan was, let me pick up another middle infielder, uh, who I can then, if I need to bench Rendon, put Segura in at third base, and I would just play that middle infielder there. The problem was I was really obsessed with picking up Oswald Peraza everywhere that I could, not necessarily hoping that he would come up this week, but he's just been on this home run barrage in the minors. Volpe hasn't looked all that great. And I figured, Hey, at some point he'll come up. He was not my first conditional, uh, he was maybe my fourth conditional, but that's who I ended up landing on. So had I got any of the other three guys ahead of uh, Peraza, I would have a fill-in for this week and would not be taking this rundown zero, but otherwise, uh, yeah, it is what it
0: is at this point. It is what it is. Miami outfielder Brian De La Cruz was a really timely pickup for you. So far, uh, four home runs, a couple of bags, 361 batting average. Can't expect that to continue, but what pushed you towards picking up Brian De La Cruz when you did?
2: Uh, this was a case of somebody that I wasn't necessarily interested in at the price uh, at the during the draft season. But I am always in the market for players that are uh, basically drafted and then dropped when they are cold because, as we all know, baseball is incredibly cyclical, and somebody that has some power and and you know can can hit like O'Brien De la Cruz, I mean, when he's at the bottom, it, that's when you pick him up. and, obviously somebody like that on the free agent market now would probably command triple digit bids. I was able to score him for eight bucks at the time and uh, I, I've just been lucky, you know, just kind of really uh, needed the outfield help at the time and um, yeah, it was very timely and very lucky with him there.
0: Some famous guy said luck is the residue of designers like Ben Franklin or one of those super wise mm-hmm. guys. And it seems like this is a, a an object lesson for all of us is keep your eyes peeled on your league's free agent list for guys who have been dropped, who might be you might not have thought were droppable that you would not have dropped yourself based on a slow start or whatever and and see if those guys are available because sometimes they are especially the week after or two weeks after they've been dropped they kind of fall off everybody's radar and then all of a sudden like you did you grab him for eight bucks and back he comes because he's a skilled player and you liked him originally I think that's a great way to keep your free agent list churning Uh, thus far in the season speaking of which Vlad you've dropped 17 hitters Uh, how does that compare with the volume of drops in other leagues in other years
2: it's pretty much on par uh to past seasons at least the last couple of seasons i used to be much less aggressive in in fab at this point in most leagues uh, in previous seasons i'd probably have five six hundred left at this point i have around two 250 in most of my leagues uh and i have been churning and burning more than usual and sometimes you end up with some good fortune in those cases like i did with like a brian de la cruz uh and then other times you don't um there were a couple of guys i picked up the timing just didn't work out. Uh, Alex Kirilov was one. I picked him up, I think, two weeks before uh, before he was promoted. And unfortunately, uh, a friend of mine who is a huge Twins fan, he got in my head. I'm not kidding you. He was that the team does not like him, does not believe in him. And um, that just kind of I needed to drop at the time. I'm like, you know what? Uh, you know, if, if he comes back up and I have to uh, spend up for him, maybe I will. But him, I dropped. I dropped Jake Berger. Uh, As well, Uh, I had picked him up for 30 bucks. I believe I got a couple weeks out of him. And then I think it was maybe when Makata was coming back. Uh, Another costly one was Zach McKinstry. Uh, I was early on the Zach McKinstry train. I still have him on a bunch of teams, which is great. Uh, But the timing on that was bad. And it was, he was coming up with facing like four of six lefties in a week, in which case he was just not going to play. But we all know that when he does start, uh, when, when they do face a righty, he's in the lineup, he's leading off. And he's been incredible these last couple weeks. So, uh, obviously I'd be a lot closer to the uh, the top spot overall had I left McKinstry and as you mentioned, as a matter of fact, I could use somebody at third base right now.
0: On the pitching side, this team has really scored your top two drafted starters were Garrett Cole and Christian Javier and John Gray of Texas a little later on, but you've also churned through seven or eight other starters. Uh, none of them are on your roster now. Was this churn and burn strategy with starters designed into your season plan or was it the result of circumstances or was it a bit of both
2: yeah i mean if I, I go into the season i mean hoping that i most of my starting pitchers i would be able to just uh you know roll with them for for the season but as we know that never happens and so uh this staff i mean outside of those top two it wasn't necessarily all that uh strong i think out of the draft uh, michael Waka is somebody else that uh he was one of my highest rostered players i have a uh, lots of Waka. Uh, For whatever reason, I dropped him on this team. I don't remember exactly why, but I dropped him at the worst time, Um, so that's been rough. I could really use him, Uh, but at the same time, picked up Tanner Bybee. That's been working out pretty well. John Gray has been on an amazing run over the past month, and even a little Carlos Carrasco. He's been um, rolling for the last couple weeks. I did make another pickup this past week. Actually, two pitchers that I got for $5 total, uh, Ben Lively and Mike Mayers. And so Mike Mayers, I benched him this week. He was uh, going to follow the opener uh, in Kansas City, Josh Stamont on Monday at St. Louis. So I figured I'd avoid that start. I had enough guys I could use. And the other one was Ben Lively, who I was really worried about. I did not feel good about it. I feel like I got lucky, to be honest. So um, maybe he just joined the luck team, and that's what will happen for now.
0: You mentioned Tanner Bybee. Uh, I picked him up as well. So we've both done well, I think, as his- current era 309 he's got a 116 whip no wins in cleveland uh the only dud game that he had was surprisingly against detroit but when you look at a guy like Bybee, how much of an auto start is he versus uh let's see every week what the matchup is
2: uh for me he's a he's an auto start just because my uh depth falls off a lot after cole and, and javier and so yeah i mean i think for the most part he's going to be locked in i think maybe if he goes through Uh, some struggles, maybe at some point I'd I'd consider benching him, and that's when guys like Radon and Savali come back, so then I I think at that point I may end up uh, having some tougher decisions.
0: And Savali coming back, and Tristan McKenzie, of course, coming back is going to start putting a bit of a squeeze on that Guardians rotation anyway, although maybe they'll trade somebody or figure something out, try to get some offense going. Luis Ortiz of Pittsburgh, not so solid for you, a 461-72 decimals. You have one win from Garcia, but the same question, how are you handling Ortiz's starts versus sits for the foreseeable future? He's going
2: to be a bubble guy for sure. I'm looking at his matchups every week. I also think he's on the roster bubble altogether, both on my team and on his real team. Um, So of those three starts, one of them was actually a gem. I think he pitched a little over seven innings. He did give up a couple runs, but that was the start that he won. The other two were not so great. Uh, And then hopefully he does well against uh, the Cardinals at home this week. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it looks like they, for whatever reason, I mean, I mean, maybe because of, uh, how things are going through Ron- Ronzi Contreras, seems like they like him just a little bit more at the moment. Like there was some talk of possibly moving Ronzi to, uh, to the bullpen. Uh, but we'll see. I mean, the thing with Luis Ortiz, he lives a few more weeks because Vince Velasquez is, uh, he re-injured that elbow of his. So he's no longer uh, going to be in the rotation, at least for quite some time. Luis, he, he can, uh, he can shove for sure. He's got that, uh. I think 96, 97 fastball, and uh, he's a good pitcher. It's obviously a solid home park for them. So uh, hopefully, he's a surprise, another gift for me.
0: We discussed earlier your seventeen hitters that you've dropped so far, eleven pitchers this year, eight of them were starters. How does that number compare with your usual pace? It's uh, it's really
2: it's on par. I I did make one crucial mistake in where I would probably have a lot of fab left over, but. Uh, I think the first fab weekend, I felt like I really needed a starting pitcher and Tyler McGill was available and um, you know, he was being drafted at the end of main events, but not in this one. And, uh, you know, or the rotation spot and man, just watching him closely that I have him on his team. I just could not wait to drop him. Uh, there was even some weeks where um, I specifically targeted hitters against him in DFS. Like I would play DFS that day just to target against Tyler McGill and it worked out. So. Um, he is uh, to me not a very good pitcher, and I can still cannot believe I spent almost one uh, fifth of my budget on him. <laughs> uh,
0: hedging your bets using DFS is not a bad strategy if in your master overall master plan. I guess uh, you mentioned your fab in this league is down to two fifty or so. You said, what's your strategy for the rest of the season as far as going aggressively after key type guys, or you're going to kind of keep your powder dry for later in the year? How are you going to work that? Yeah, I'm going
2: to do my best to control my spending. It's definitely something that has been an issue. It, it really was not previous to the pandemic year, uh, you know, 2019 and beyond, or before that, I was always reasonable, and and for whatever reason, there there is still now a two-year hangover effect for me because of the other you know, shortened season, and so you were kind of spending more because there were less weeks in 2020, and I know that I overspent early, was too aggressive in 2021, and seemed to be doing it this year as well. I think there's definitely some correlation to uh, the Fab article that I put out every week for FTN because I'm spending a lot of time on that Friday nights, Saturday mornings, and kind of want to make sure I get my guys. But then I'm kind of restricting myself because I kind of sometimes need to, I mean, obviously, I don't want to bid something extremely higher than the range that I'm offering. And so it's this, this tough little pickle that I find myself in sometimes.
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Vlad Sedler from FTN Fantasy. And Vlad, in uh, one of your recent pods, you were talking about something that perhaps we as a community don't talk about enough, how to balance being a good, successful fantasy baseball manager, and in our cases, content creator, with being a good, successful person in all the other areas of our lives, especially our families. What sparked the idea to talk about this underreported topic?
2: It was, um, uh, just happened to be something I thought of when thinking about the guests that I had in my, uh, had come, come, come in that day. Cause both are young fathers. We're both, you know, we're all guys in our late thirties, early forties. And, um, just, it's, it's an important topic. It's something that a lot of people deal with, uh, the, the burnout, both on the, those that play volume in fantasy and those that are, uh, content creators and play and have day jobs and have kids. So, um, yeah, I think it was important. I feel like, uh, Based on the comments I I received afterwards, it resonated with a lot of folks.
0: I bet it did. I thought it was really interesting. I mean, I'm retired and I still find a, I remember having to push through a full-time job, kids in school and sports all of those kind of other things that you have going on in your life. Plus, you know, you've got Ron Chandler saying, where's my story, you know, where's that podcast, you know, and yeah, yeah, really it is a juggling act and it is a lot of pressure for sure. Both of your guests, uh, when you were talking about this, said they'd been in home leagues that had disbanded. I don't have a home league anymore. Uh, it was a four by four road. It's still going, but I'm not in it. I think, uh, I think of Tout American League as my home league now. But your guest Sammy Reed said his now disbanded home league played with some funky categories like on base percentage instead of batting average, slugging percentage instead of home runs, like that quality starts. And it feels too bad to me that leagues like that are kind of withering away in favor of the monolithic platforms, NFBC, ESPN, CBS, Yahoo, and it's standardizing the way the game is played to a large extent. How do you think losing these home leagues and these kind of quirky rules that they have in different formats affects the larger fantasy community?
2: Uh, I, I think it's important to have these these unique type of leagues. Uh, we obviously want to, to not assimilate all too much. It's nice to have a common... Ah uh, standard uh, five by five roto that everyone can can reference. but these these quirks of these leagues, I feel like are so important, and uh, it's 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 really important to have them. I mean, I haven't played in one of these leagues in in quite some time, and I feel like uh, perhaps next year something I would be open to in 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 the future.
0: Uh, Your guest, Eric Somolsky, said one of the effects he had was having to recalibrate his projections and draft plans for leagues with different categories, league sizes, that kind of thing, and said he came out of one such recalibrated draft thinking that he'd done something wrong. And I wonder, is that a feature of playing different leagues or a bug?
2: You know, uh, my one uh, foray outside of standard 5x5 this this season was Tout Wars, and uh, it's obviously the OBP league. And obviously I had a lot of uh, subscribers who were asking um, if they could have some sort of rankings for that. So there was a lot of work to be done in order to, you know, it's just that one category, making sure that there was, a, you know, that that was something that we could offer as well. And it's, it's, it's really different. You just, when you are drafting in that format, you just have to completely just recalibrate in your brain and, and it's difficult. And and it's one of the reasons why I kind of like to stick to one format because um, yeah, I do feel uncomfortable in, in other formats. And it makes me feel like I am making some mistakes and I don't have that confidence. And even in like the first round, I'm looking at a Aaron Judge versus Acuna versus Soto, um, whoever it is in my third pick, and, and you know, not really knowing what the, what the right answer is. Whereas in the standard five by five, I just know.
0: Yeah, and like we were talking about earlier, I mean, you're busy. You got a million things to think about as it is and there's really no need to lumber yourself with quirky different rules. I play in three leagues, they all have different rules. I got a head-to-head, not a head-to-head, a points league, an overall points league. Then I got tout with an on-base league and, and a different size of roster and then I've got an NFBC, a TGFBI league, which has a different set of rules again and You know, I can deal with it, but I have to recalculate every time I think about doing anything with any of these leagues. And I have to kind of do all the work three times, so so that part of it sucks. Uh, Either Sammy or uh, Sammy Reed or Eric Simulski also mentioned the ability to play in a league where you know most of the guys at the draft table, which lets you learn about them and get reads and tells from them instead of everyone being a stranger that you meet once and that's it. How much difference does that make in not necessarily playing the game, but also in enjoying it?
2: I think it's more enjoyable when you're playing with uh, people you know, you're comfortable with, and you can read their tells both, say, at an auction or in a draft room or online in a draft room or even during the season or get a feel for what kind of deals you can make with them if you're trading with them and whatnot. Uh, I've been part of the NFBC community long enough where I do have some of those reads or some of those tendencies that I know about some of the players that I'm joining because a lot of these folks are volume players. You almost kind of know uh, like who their guys are and it's not like i'm necessarily going after those guys but it is something that i'm sort of recalculating when i'm going into a draft with a few people like okay i might need to be a little bit more aggressive on this player because i know they like them as well so um it's uh, it's fun it's more difficult adds another dimension to it but uh, but i enjoy it
0: I played in that home league years ago and one of the guys in our league, he was the biggest Cal Ripken fan and everybody at the draft knew it. So if he happened to be available at the auction, well, you can bet that everybody was taking turns pushing this guy on Cal Ripken to astronomical heights and the guy would pay it, you know, he would just, yeah, all right, what I got to do, I got, I got to do. And he was a good player and he actually won the league despite usually overpaying for, uh, for Cal Ripken. Mind you, Cal Ripken's not a bad guy to overpay on if you're going to overpay on anybody. Uh, one of the things that seems to get pushed to the side, uh, Eric Simulski said is actually watching baseball games he mentioned that the only way he really can watch is those condensed versions of games. I think they're on MLB TV or something or 30 minute games and stuff. How has your content work and team management affected your ability to just take in a game because you want to watch a game?
2: I mean, I try to have baseball on in the background when, when I'm writing, working whenever I can. Uh, I have two young children who always see baseball on the TV and my almost two year old runs in and yells baseball and, uh, she actually just broke my uh, my Vince Scully mic, um, like that. That says you know it's time for Dodger baseball. She'd come in, press it like nonstop, and um, you know. Anyways, it, it broke. We try to glue it together. It's not working, but she always comes in and asks for that and asks for baseball. So that's really nice and rewarding. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I try to watch as much as I can, uh, rewind at bats, and, and and watch certain people. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I'm more of a numbers guy. Like um, I um, honestly. I know that there are players that are really good out there. They don't watch any baseball. I think it is important to watch some, uh, but uh, I don't think it uh, defines or really is a huge, uh, something that really fuels me or makes me a better fantasy player by watching more.
0: I agree with you. I think, in fact, watching a lot of baseball can sometimes lead you down the garden path because you see somebody and, you know, this guy looks like a ball player. We'll talk more about that, I think, later on. Uh, This has been very interesting so far, Vlad. Uh, Let's take a break. I'll bring in Ray Murphy. We'll do our news update and then we'll come back and finish our discussion. All right, that sounds great. Vlad Sedler is the Fab Whisperer and a regular writer at FTN Fantasy, and he co-hosts the FTN Fantasy Baseball podcast. He'll be back later to talk about his methods for Fab management and how to manage personal biases. And he'll have his boons and banes for this weekend's Fab runs. Coming up next, we have our Market Watch Player News Report with Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com. That's next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about an item of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Speculator column, analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at starting pitchers whose decimals have been hammered by one and just one terrible start, and then he recalculates their decimals without the one bad start. You'll get some new ideas about how you might want to evaluate Braxton Garrett and Sandy Alcantara of Miami, Andrew Heaney of Texas, Zach Greinke of Kansas City, and Marco Gonzalez of Seattle, among others. And in the Daily Call-Ups report, the Baseball HQ scouting team assesses all the week's called-up prospects, including Atlanta right-hander A.J. Smith-Shauver, Texas right-hander Grant Anderson, and Angels right-handers Sam Bachman and Ben Joyce. Plus, In the latest edition of the Eyes Have It Prospect podcast, Chris Blessing flies solo with video scouting reports on Mets right-handed pitching prospect Mike Vazel, Orioles outfield prospect Heston Scherstad and right-handed pitcher Chase McDermott, and Diamondbacks second base prospect Ryan Bliss. The Speculator column and all that great Baseball HQ Prospects coverage, more great resources at BaseballHQ.com.
1: Baseball HQ Radio. (laughs)
0: Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our weekly news review and update. And here with the latest is Ray Murphy, co general manager, projections expert, writer, and analyst at baseballhq.com. Ray, welcome back to the show.
3: Thank you, PD. Welcome to June.
0: It's June. Yeah, no kidding. We're going into month number three, I guess, if you don't count uh, the couple of days in March. So we're getting to the point where we're starting to think that maybe our team's positions in the standings are starting to get a little more stable.
3: Yeah, I always kind of make the analogy or think about it in terms of uh solidifying like liquid into concrete right and you know we're in some kind of uh you know slurry or something that's uh that's hardening uh as as the season goes on and it's getting a, it's getting a little harder to, to, tur- to turn that dipstick or whatever it is that you have <laughs> stirring 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 the mixture
0: yeah with not with your dipstick however <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole other thing yeah. I remember when I first started writing for Baseball HQ, Ron Chandler used to say Memorial Day was when you needed to start taking it seriously. But of late, I've been hearing more and more people say it's more like mid to late June now. You want to be closer to halfway than a third of the way.
3: Yeah, it, it's a couple couple of different lenses to that, I think. You know, there's the lens of individual performance, and then there's the lens of your team and what impact you can make on the standings. And I think we what we know about individual performance and how long it takes uh, statistics to regress and that sort of thing, you know, gives us one answer to that question. But you can't sit here waiting for all of those things to happen because by then your league standings are sufficiently turned into concrete that you can't really flip the script. You don't have enough time left to flip the script and make up the uh, make up that early season damage or whatever it was. So you have to you have to throw you know. be individually patient, but collectively aggressive. Does that make any sense?
0: It does. And when I was thinking about it, I was looking at my own uh, leagues, especially the one that I'm winning in, because I'm more interested in protecting that lead if I can. And I think what it is, is by sort of this time, you have a pretty good idea of where you stand in the counting stats, but you have no idea really at all where you stand in the ratio stats, because I've dropped Six points in in my uh, OBP league in that category in like the last ten days, maybe.
3: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I like to look at my standings even at this time of year in a context of where am I out of step with the pack, like either good or bad, right? And if you're if you're in the middle of the bell curve in any counting stat category that's still pretty easy to move from 10th to fifth or even, you know, 12th to third, if you need to In a, you know, if you're in like a 15 team week um, that's probably attainable. But if you're out of step, if you fell off in saves, I had one league where I had one save at the end of April and I have sort of resolved that problem and I'm now accumulating saves, but it takes so long to just close the gap between one and you know 12 or whatever the next person had that like even uh you know sort of in, in racing terms to get back to the you know the, the lead pack or the you know the, the peloton as it were is you know a significant effort even before you can worry about getting ahead of them you have to you have to get within shouting distance of them first and that takes a while and as you say the ratios are a whole other different thing um again the way i think about it is you know if you're at the point at right now where you're trying to repair a you know a four fifty ERA or something, you know, that gets hard to do because you're you're gonna need some really good pitching because your denominator of innings is growing and oh by the way, you probably don't have a lot of good pitching because you have that four fifty ERA.
0: Right. I have a, uh, I'm actually leading my league in ERA despite some very poor performances by my relief pitching, but my starters have been quite good. And as a result, I think I may be benefiting from that uh, large denominator factor that you mentioned because I have a good ERA and a lot of innings. I'm at 440 innings at this point, which means I'm on track for about what, 1300 or so, which would be a pretty large number. But at 440, I feel like my ratios are getting pretty locked in. And I don't have to worry quite as much about falling off the way I would if I only had 150 innings, because then a, you know a, a one bad start is a proportionally much greater impact on the ratio than it would be the same bad start with a 440 innings under my belt as I have.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. You use the metric of starts there, which is right. I was as you were describing that, I was thinking about it in terms of weeks where you could absorb, you know, with that denominator, you can absorb a bad, you know, forty in a week yeah. without too much damage. But you know, it'll take you know, it would take three or four bad weeks in a row to really trash the cushion you've put together there. Now that could happen, of course, but I won't wish that upon you.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously you can't just put it in your pocket and say there I've won ERA because uh, a lot of things can happen especially in those ratio categories our mutual friend Todd Zola is quite fond of reminding people that the ratio categories do not get set in nearly as soon as you think and you can still be making gains with five weeks to go you can still jump three or four points it depends on how the category itself is telescoped of course but it's not as hard to move in those categories as you think it is it's actually much harder to move in the in the counting stats, because nobody can move backwards towards you.
3: That's the whole trick: is that there's there's bi-directional movement, right? Right. And the other thing, that, the other thing that Todd always reminds us of, um is that the whip standings are more of a predictor of skill level and future direction than the ERA category because of strand rates and things like that. So, if you're trying to get a sense of where you sort of truly belong and where you might regress to, where there are no guarantees, you know, there if you're looking at the difference between your whip and your ERA, you know, you're you're likely to move in the direction of your whip.
0: That's exactly right as well. Uh, let's start our own uh review of the news this week in Baltimore and speaking of uh, counting stats going uh, uh, missing Cedric Mullins was put on the 10-day IL with the right groin strain. this is going to be murder for Baltimore and for anybody who's got Cedric Mullins on a fantasy roster because he was piling up uh, the stolen bases of course but also contributing in all those other counting stats having a terrific year now he's on the shelf uh, Ryan Williams covers the Orioles for playing time today Ray uh, this is terrible news for the Birds. Uh, what's the outlook
3: yeah terrible news for you know literally every day that he's out and unfortunately it looks like this is not a minimum IL stint situation uh he pulled the groin muscle while running out of ground ball and uh you know imaging after the after they got him off the field looked at, showed a grade a grade 2 injury which indicates that there is some tearing of the muscle there uh so we're projecting he's going to be at at least a month, maybe longer, which as you say, is just devastating for the Orioles, for fantasy rosters, just bad news all over the place.
0: And I don't know if we've ever looked into this, but the suspicion is that when a running player like Cedric Mullins hurts some part of his leg that even when he does come back, you can expect your stolen bases not to be at the same level they would have been had he not been hurt. I don't know if that's actually true. If they just, if they're going to make sure that he's actually healed enough that he can go back to his regular status and regular approach to the game. Do you know anything about that? Have we ever looked into that?
3: I don't know that we've looked into that. And as you, as you're suggesting it, the first thing I think I would want to see is the positional element of it, uh, you know, obviously we'll know more as Mullins gets closer to come, coming back, but in a scenario where, for instance, they came back and wanted to DH him for a while and get his bat in the lineup, sure, I would be very suspicious of whether he would be ready to run, but on the flip side of the coin, you can't really throw him in center field without him being ready to run, right. so if they get him out in the outfield and he's able to, you know, run down a fly ball in the gap, I'm going to you know, speculate as a non-medical person uh, that, you know, the the skill of running down a fly ball in the gap and the speed involved in that is probably not terribly different from the stolen base skill. And if he can do one, he can probably do the other.
0: Now, the next question is with Cedric Mullins not playing, somebody's got to go out there and play center field for Baltimore and their selection doesn't look that promising.
3: No, they're, uh, that, the outfield is not a source of depth for the Orioles right now. And if you needed proof of that, uh, the, the transaction that they made to claim Aaron Hicks off of waivers about 15 minutes after the Yankees put him on waivers, I think is kind of all the proof of that you needed. And the reason that Hicks you know, fits so well into this bad situation is that all of the incumbent options that the Orioles have are dinged up on their own, but down in the minors, both Colton Cowser and Kyle Stowers. Stowers has been on the roster a couple of times this year, but they're both on the minor league IL right now. So neither one of them is an option. So in terms of allocating Bowens' playing time among the available options, uh, you know, we're kind of chopping it up between Hicks and Ryan McKenna and Taryn Vavra. Um, so against the lefties, it'll probably be McKenna who's a right-handed hitter and could go in the center field, slide Austin Hayes to left and maybe some Hicks and right, maybe Anthony Santander out there when he's not DHing, um, But, obviously they're going to face more righties than lefties and it's net, it's less clear what they're going to do there that's probably where Hicks fits into the picture um or with hayes jumping over the center with vavra and left vavra has some plate skills you know in terms of putting the bat on the ball but no power no speed to be seen there he's got one home run one stolen base this year and 159 plate appearances so safe to say that's a uh that's not a commensurate replacement for Cedric Mullins.
0: I think that Vavra total of one home run and one stolen base is over two seasons. Oh, even worse. Yeah. one, one A home run in one season and a stolen base in the other. and <laughs>
3: <laughs> You can set your sundial by it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that, that's right. Yeah. And- The problem, I think, with uh, this whole situation, well, they're lucky that Hayes doesn't have really big platoon splits, so he can play pretty much every day, and Santander, they can get into the lineup pretty regularly, but they are going to have some trouble defensively in center field if they're running Hayes out there. I don't think he's going to make anybody forget Cedric Mullins, that's for sure. Uh, Hicks looked okay this year in New York when he was playing the outfield, but not The Hicks of old. I don't think I'm not. I haven't seen Ryan McKenna enough to to say anything. So I actually read that the Orioles might look at moving Jorge Mateo from shortstop to center field because the thinking is that if the team can play him in center field, they can find it easier to replace him because they've got a couple of really good shortstop prospects. Uh, Jordan Westberg has been scalding Triple A. I think a 1005 OPS, 15 homers, and 220 plate appearances. And they've already tried Julia Ortiz, who has OPS around 900 at AAA, but he struggled in his first pass in Major League Baseball at 546 OPS. So is there a shot here that Mateo finds himself wandering around in an unfamiliar pasture?
3: I think there is a shot at it, but I again, this sort of underscores sort of how desperate a situation this is for the Orioles, because the only thing keeping Mateo in the lineup and keeping Gunnar Henderson off of shortstop, you know, Henderson's been kind of bouncing between short and third all year, and the reason for that is because Mateo is so good short, at shortstop defensively, and if they're going to blow that up to get put him in a position in center field where he's not you know, nearly as superlative as is at shortstop. It may not even be a, you know, a, a replacement for Cedric Mullins' level just to get Westbrook, Westbrook or Ortiz or Gunnar Henderson at shortstop into the lineup more often. I mean, sure, that kind of works, but, you know, now you've got a lot of dominoes moving around and there's a lot of points of failure there.
0: Yeah, that's what I thought too. My only consideration when I thought this might work is that adding Westberg and keeping Mateo might be better than keeping Mateo at short and putting uh, Hicks or or Taren Vavra in center or out in the outfield anywhere, frankly, you know, if you sum up the available, it's like when you're in a a fantasy draft and you think to yourself, would I rather have uh, in an auction situation, would I rather have a $25 player and a $1 player or two, two 13s, you know? And I think that's a, possibility that the Orioles are going to be looking at. I just don't know who it's likely to be. And I don't know if Jordan Westbrook is a particularly adroit defensive shortstop either. That would matter.
3: Yeah. And, you know, we're talking about it from, this is all kind of ironic because we're talking about it from the defensive point of view. And, you know, that's supposedly the thing that us fantasy players don't care about. Right. But on the flip side of it, I'm sure the Orioles are thinking about Westbrook and Ortiz in terms of replacing Mullins' presence in their lineup, which is obviously a huge loss there. And, you know, Mateo has cooled off, you know, badly after a hot start. And he's kind of a, he's kind of the weakest link in that lineup as it is. So to your point, Let's just take the one week link, put him th- and move him somewhere else to get the best bat into the lineup we can, and that's probably Westberg. So when we see that, um, that'll be the Orioles compromising defense for offense, basically. But from a fantasy point of view, like I said, we shouldn't care.
0: <laughs> Except that defense keeps guys in lineups, and well, for sure, and it could be that. Uh... A decent shortstop usually can make a pretty good center fielder. You know, they got a pretty similar angle on the ball on the field and those kind of things. Usually, pretty and good. And the arm is on. usually there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, all those kind of things. I mean, the, I think of a lot of center fielders who, who started out as major league shortstops, and Robin Yount's the one that pops into my mind most readily. And he was pretty good at both. So I think it's possible that uh, Mateo could be a serviceable center fielder and maybe better as a center fielder than anybody else they could put out there. And as I said, that, that opportunity cost works in his benefit Uh, let's move on to Detroit the Tigers are also losing outfielders like the rest of us lose our car keys Uh, the team put two outfielders on the IL this week including star center fielder Riley Green who is off to a terrific start and right fielder Matt Veerling Tim Kavanaugh covers the story for playing time today what are the Tigers next steps
3: yeah I'm gonna start with a trivia question for you PD because I was uh doing this site editing and headline writing the other day when this news item came up and i got cute and wanted to know what a uh, you know made reference to a uh, you know a group of tigers suffering injuries and wanted to know what the what a group of tigers is called so like, i had to google it and put it in the lineup like a pack or whatever you or know pride you know what of lions
0: is. or whatever yeah exactly um i'm gonna say a scare
3: close it's a streak actually
0: oh okay. there you go <laughs>
3: <laughs> so anyway there have, and you know th- that works in two ways because there've been a streak of tiger outfield injuries right uh, <laughs> As a headline writer I, I loved it.
0: So what are they going to do about it?
3: Um so the, you know, the the headliner here is uh you know the loss of Riley Green because Green was showing a fair amount of growth this year and really you know delivering on his p- prospect pedigree for the first time, which is always exciting, and you hate to see that get interrupted. And works yet, uh, I think we're waiting on a second opinion on his injury, but a stress fracture in his left leg, uh, lower leg, you know, sounds ominous. Sounds like this could be a fairly, uh, fairly significant injury there, so always hate to see that.
0: Yeah, I heard that he was going to get a second opinion, and I thought, well, first opinion is going to be, hey, that sucks. Second opinion, hey, that really sucks.
3: Yep, so, still sucks.
0: <laughs> still sucks, yeah. So the next question is, what about Vierling?
3: Yeah, Vierling had assumed a lot of playing time. Uh, he started the season as kind of the bad side platoon fourth outfielder there, but then uh, you know two of the lefties ahead of him, uh, Austin Meadows and Kerry Carpenter, both, uh landed on the I.L. as well, and that had created an, an expanded opportunity for Vierling. Um, his skills were mediocre. You know, big makes lots of contact, but a uh, fair amount of swing and miss. You know, from a fantasy perspective, certainly Green was the more impactful one. Uh, Green might have been a little bit out over his skis with, uh, you know, a good 290s batting average despite only 68% contact. Um, but with both of them out, you know, where are the Tigers turning? They signed Jake Marisnik, you know, how I think we can characterize as a journeyman at this point. Uh, He probably takes over in center field, where at least he provides competent defense there. Zach McKinstry has been kind of bouncing around the infield between second and third base and some corner outfield. He could get a little more time in the corner outfields here too. Um, I think I mentioned Kerry Carpenter earlier, who's been on the IL with a shoulder problem for the last month or so, but he's supposedly getting close. So it could be that if he gets back, then he is sort of the playing time winner here as the first one of this group of Veerling and Green and Meadows and Carpenter to return from the IL.
0: Any help on the Tigers farm system?
3: There's a third baseman down there at AAA, Justin Henry Malloy. Uh, you know, a, kind of a shaky third baseman, but, but it would also made some appearances in the outfield. They could turn there. He might be a better option than, you know, Phil Maton has been getting some work at third base there as well. Um, he's got, you know, um Malloy has an OPS around 870 in the minors with seven home runs, which, you know, when 230 plate appearances, it's a, you know, 20 home run is pace. So there's some, you know, there's some pop there. Um, some, I read, read a scouting report that said he might be, he might profile as a short side platoon guy, but he's hitting righties pretty well this year. He's got 930 OPS versus righties. So I guess that's worth a stash in case the Tigers turn there, uh, you know, even if it's in the short term while they're waiting for Carpenter to come back, or if uh, they decide to, uh, you, you know, c- call him up and try to get a little more thump in the lineup there with, with Molloy.
0: In Los Angeles, it seems like we talked about Mickey Moniak and Taylor Ward not too long ago, but the Angels have climbed above 500. They're thinking about the playoffs, but they're having all kinds of trouble scoring runs. And once you get past sort of Otani and And Mike Trout, there's not a lot of thump in that lineup anymore, uh, maybe a little bit here and there, but Jock Thompson in his playing time tomorrow coverage of the American League West says that the Angels roster is at the moment, shall we say, turbulent.
3: Yeah, for sure. If you think about, we've talked about sort of their approach to the offseason, which was to try to get, you know, sort of a higher replacement level of player, like try to establish like, you know, average guys around Trout and Otani rather than, you know, way below average guys. And, you know, that hasn't really worked that well. You know, I think some of the pitching changes they made have you know, worked out better. The bullpen's been rebuilt with, you know, some effectiveness. Carlos Estevez has been relatively stable in the back end and the pieces in front of him have sort of fallen together decently. But, you know, we talked about Moniak last week and we're talking about... How he had supplanted Taylor Ward on the good side of the platoon and was getting a long look there, and you know now he's gone ice cold. Um, you know, in the last uh, 10, 11 days, he's seven for his last 30 with a couple of home runs, but 10 strikeouts, and notably for a guy that, you know, don't, let's not forget they were trying to get Moniak to be the leadoff hitter in front of Trout and Otani, and he has not walked since May 13th, which is, shall we say, not setting the table well. Um, The the problem here is that Ward hasn't really been any better. You know, Moniak has stayed in the lineup and gotten more rope because Ward is also 7 for 31 with nine strikeouts against one walk. So we talked last week about curtain number three, which was Joe Adele um, lurking in AAA and doing Joe Adele things like hitting for power and striking out a ton. but now he's one for seventeen in Triple A with seven Ks, so no sign of a hot, you know, no sign of a well-timed hot streak that could have punched him a ticket back to Anaheim. But if Ward and Moniac keep struggling, the Angels may pull pull on curtain number three and try to see if they can harness Adele's power a little bit because nothing else is working here.
0: Yeah, if everybody's striking out, you might as well at least get the home runs. Uh, yeah, totally. <laughs> Baseball HQ analyst Corbin Young also covered Moniak in uh, Facts and Flukes' performance validation column this week. Ray, were his comments favorable or were they Corbin Burns?
3: Yeah, they were kind of Corbin they were kind of burns or whereas you know for one of my Simpson's jokes it was boo Burns, right?
0: <laughs> yeah.
3: Um but uh you know what what Corbin d- dug into there was that I uh, you, you know the headliner on Moniac's skill set is a 42% hit rate which is officially way out over his skis, and that's propping up uh, sort of the rest of his skills. Um, his expected batting average is still decent at 270, because when he makes contact, it's generally hard contact. Um, but the weird thing is that he's carrying that 42% hit rate with a big fly ball rate, which should not really work, because the hit rate on fly balls that don't go over to the fence is usually very very low. So that's that's a tough thing for him to sustain. For sure a 22% home run per fly rate, so 22% of his fly balls are landing on the other side of the fence. That part's good. Um but also probably unsustainable. So um a whole the, the whole story here is a whole lot of stuff that really in all of our experience does not all work together over a larger sample size you can't carry a big hit rate with a big fly ball rate and a big home run per fly rate you know sort of those levers don't all go up at the same time right so um and then you you know if you expect regression there the other side of the coin is he's also a very free swinger with a you know he ch- chasing balls out of the strike zone 50 of the time so you know that kind of aggression we talked about though not having walked in almost a month now that kind of aggression also suggests that, you know, pitchers can alter their approach and get him out more consistently. So yeah, there's a lot of problems here.
0: Big strikeouts, big fly ball rates doesn't add up to a big batting average. That's for sure. Let's move over to the pitcher side in the American league, Ray and bad news for Boston fans and for Chris sales, fantasy managers. The left-hander was on a heater the last little while, but he left Thursday's game with what the team called shoulder soreness. They were supposed to send him for an MRI today, a uh, Friday, and uh, I wonder if there's been any results up there in Boston, where you are.
3: I have not seen results yet. I looked right before we got on the uh, horn here. Um, I would imagine they will come out in the next couple of hours as the uh, you know the, as the media finds their way into the locker room on Friday to talk to Alex Cora. Uh, but certainly it looked ominous yesterday. You know, sales started out the game looking okay but then in the uh, fourth inning they went to the mound a couple of times because they noticed his velocity was way down he lost you know three to four miles per hour between the first inning and the fourth um so yeah setting up for the mri and you know it doesn't seem like you know and he, he did complain of shoulder pain or soreness or something so it's not you know the, the benign the only benign explanation I can think of is that it was something like mechanical. Um, But that seems to not be the case. So if there's actual pain in the shoulder, you sort of can't imagine. uh, Oh, he's fine. It's just, you know, you don't get cramps in your shoulder when you're pitching. Right. So um, I I think it's almost certain that I'll stint is coming here. And, you know, even if it's structurally sound, you're going to get the, you know, anti-inflammatories and shut them down for a couple of weeks and then build them up slowly. It's, you know, you could tell me right now that he's back for the all-star break. And I'd be like, okay, that sounds great. That's probably the best case scenario.
0: He's been injury prone throughout his career. I think his last full season was 2017 and he's had Shoulder inflammation, I think, the next year. But uh, subsequent to that, he's just had a bunch of fluky kind of things. He fell off a bike and broke his wrist, I think, uh, this offseason or the last offseason. And he's had all kinds of weird sort of injuries. Yeah, there was it, the it,
3: line drive know. off the hand last year when he was right. on you know, his second or third start back from the Tommy John. It's just, uh, you know, <laughs> you, you want to send him out to the mounted bubble wrap at this point. <laughs>
0: In Detroit, speaking of losses in the rotation, uh, we mentioned the difficulties the Tigers are having in their outfield with the Riley Green injury, but maybe even worse news for the rotation. Bounce back, breakout left-hander Eduardo Rodriguez is headed to the IL with an injury to his left index finger. Uh, Jim Ferretti, who writes in the Big Hurt Injury column at Baseball HQ, was on top of this story. What's the latest?
3: Yeah, Jim Jim Ferretti is a great resource for us. He uh you know sort of augments Matt Cedarholm in the big hurt column he, and he is actually a uh you know orthopedic surgeon himself. So uh you know comes to the deal with uh you know some legit bona fides here. So I was very curious to see his take on this. Um, he called it a finger pulley rupture, which you know, other than the obvious pull my finger jokes, didn't sound good in any way. Um, but it's an injury to one of the small ligaments in the finger that holds the tendon in place. Um, kind of thing that I guess happens to, you know, rock climbers or people like that who put, you know, crazy amounts of pressure on their finger um, that, you know, you normally see in a pitcher. Uh, the, the good news from Dr. Jim was that unless multiple ligaments are involved, usually it's not surgical. Uh, it's more of a you know rest and recover kind of thing but that's going to take a while so he put a best case on this of a you know late July return for rodriguez which is you know almost two which is two months from the injury and and it could be later than that which is you know just terrible from the perspective of rodriguez having come back and looked really good um in after coming off of a uh Sort of a lost 22 that was, you know, as much non injury as anything else. He missed a bunch of time with, uh, you know, personal situation and that kind of thing. So it was, uh, it was nice to see Rodriguez back and succeeding, but now a uh, fairly significant hurdle thrown in front of him.
0: And Dr. Jim said there's an elevated risk of recurrence or re-injury, even if he does come back this year. So his rating on the worry meter which we have at the uh, big herd column, was four out of a scale of five, with five being the worst. The, so f- a four on a scale of five on the worry meter is not a reassuring kind of number. Uh, Tim Kavanaugh also covered the story on playing time today, and that brings us to the outlook for the Detroit rotation. What the heck are they going to do? Not a lot of options.
3: Yeah, and yeah as you good point about the warrior meter i was just thinking as I was reading that this week uh i think actually for Rodriguez, that i gotta come up with a cool graphic for that Worryometer meter is good but you know it I, I should change get them to change that to like four scalpels out of five or four band-aids out of five you know we we, we give them four pads four four gauze pads for uh you know possible reinjury how uh, about that,
0: how about four swords of Damocles
3: there we go there we go. I like it. Uh, but anyway, back to the Tigers' rotation. Uh, they're calling up Reese Olsen from Triple A Toledo, uh, who earned, I say in quote his, quotes, his call up with a uh, 6.38 ERA in Triple A, which is bleak. Uh, but you know he had been pitching better of late, so maybe things are on on the uh, on the uptick for him, and the Tigers are trying to ride that wave.
0: Nowhere to go but up.
3: Nowhere to go but up. Yeah, he can't be this bad. Let's call him up and see how it goes. Uh, but just in all seriousness, he'll get first crack at the rotation spot. Uh, he's pitching tonight, uh, Friday, I think, for the, against the White Sox in Chicago. Um, and needless to say, with that uh, pedigree of the 638, even positively trending uh, ERA and AAA, I'm going to take a week-and-see approach before I uh, get interested in adding him to my roster.
0: What will be interesting is if he goes out there and throws seven innings, shutout ball, two hits, one walk, eight strikeouts, or something. Then you're going to see the wallet start flying open. And uh, I was talking about that with Vlad Sedler uh, on this week's uh, expert interview, how we can get caught up in a single start if it happens to on a, you know, on the weekend right before you're starting to fab, uh, figure out your fab bids. And I would love to see it because I'm not I'm not participating, but exactly. I'd like to see somebody well, spend 150.
3: Totally, light some fab on fire for me. That's great.
0: That's right. Uh, staying in rotations in the American League, Domingo Herman came back from his suspension. He got tossed from a game because of excessive sticky stuff on his hands, and uh, there were some pictures of it on his uniform. Ray, do you remember the Raiders defensive back Lester Hayes? There was a famous oh, picture of him.
3: Totally. And like was, holding the football up, like, you know, glued, <laughs> like basically glued to his hand, right? He was the king of the, like, one handed interception because his, uh, you know, his glove was like a, you know, a covered in gorilla glue or something, right?
0: Yeah. And, and there was this yellow gunk and it was all over every part of his uniform, his pants, his his jersey was just covered with it. He was a really, really excellent defensive back. He and Mike Haynes, I think, at the time, uh, for Hayes the and Haynes, Raiders. Sure. Yeah, Hayes and yep. Haynes. They were terrific. So, anyway, what goes on with uh, Herman? Now that he's going back, he started in Seattle, wasn't so great. What's going on in the Bronx with the Yankees rotation now that Herman is back?
3: Yeah, he came back in Seattle, like you said, after his uh, 10-day suspension. uh, was not sharp in his first outing. uh, Seven hits and four runs allowed, three walks and four strikeouts, which is not the command we had seen before. But that's probably not all that surprising because... I'm sure the umpires were paying extra attention to what, you know, the, uh, you know, what, what did and did not stick to his hands. I guess on the plus side, he did last six and the third innings. He got the win in that game. So it wasn't a complete disaster. Um, of course, speaking of disasters, on our pure quality start scale, it was a disaster, rating really only a, a PQS one. Um, but, you know, his last two starts before the suspension were both PQS twos. So he was not, uh, Dominating, shall we say, the PQS scale, uh, even though the re- outward results have been pretty decent pre-suspension. Um, so, given that you know he's going to get a lot of attention from the Umps, he's going to you know probably be washing his hands in between innings, etc. Um, you know, if you're um, if you have a, if you have a category in your fantasy league of, uh, you know, that relates to germophobes or something, that's probably good for Germ- good for Herman right now, but that's probably the only upside. I, I have Herman in a couple of leagues and I'm probably going to be pretty cautious about deploying him for his next couple of starts while we see what, uh, what the impact of, uh, clean hands is on him.
0: I'm going to be watching for how often he goes into three ball counts for the next couple of starts, because as you said, the control looked a little shaky and, and Not only is there going to be an issue if he can't get the same kind of grip that he's used to because of whatever gunk he was putting on, but there's a a psychological element too, that a guy goes out there and he's so used to using this substance and now he can't use it that it kind of gets in some guys' heads when they can't cheat the way they've been cheating and and, uh, has an outsized effect, shall we say. Uh, Let's move over to the National League and amongst the hitters, shortstop Dansby Swanson, parlayed a strong 2022 into a big free agent deal with the Cubs, but so far hasn't been going so well in the Windy City. He had fantasy seasons of $27, $20 and a big $35 last season. So that's the last three years earning fairly decent rotisserie value, but Swanson down around $16 this year. Greg Pyron looked at Swanson under the scope in Facts and Flukes this week. What's going on with Dansby Swanson?
3: Yeah, there's a lot going on here. And one of the things I like, you know, Greg took, sort of took this approach in his analysis, but we were talking earlier about where we are in the calendar in the beginning of June. And one of the things I really like about these first couple of days in June is that it's so easy and so interesting to go look at April versus May splits and see you know what a guy has done over two months is not necessarily one story. There are often this started out, this was going well and then this changed and yeah you know, there's a there's a couple of you know you have a couple of decent sample sizes months to look at to see what's happening. And Swanson's a guy that We do see some of those kind of splits. You know, Greg pointed out that he's been more selective overall, um, almost passive at the plate. You know, he's chasing the ball less, but swinging less overall, swinging and missing less, making more contact. But if you look at those splits that I was talking about, a lot of that seems to have been happening in April. And in May, things are regressing In a decent way to his old approach you know more he's swinging more he's chasing a little more but the contact has stayed the same so it's you know seems like he's regressing to a more traditional pattern and to that end the passive april he only had one home run but he added four more in may so the power skills kind of bounced up to league average the barrels were there so even though he's chasing a little bit more i think the more aggressive approach may the good may outweigh the bad there um, he's also four for five at stolen bases, which is well off of the pace he was on last year, which is disappointing considering not just he's down year over year, but he's way down considering what the, how the league has changed year over year in a in a more free stolen base environment. He's one of the few guys who's actually winning less, uh, which is a huge drag on his earnings. Um, but it, you know, all of this might be. Still, new team acclimation and you know that that pass of April, especially with a new team, and not for nothing, the bad weather in Chicago you get in April. Um, he seems like he is uh, Swanson is regressing to his norm, and the only part of his norm that I think we're really worried about now is the stolen bases, which I guess the good news is is more of a, you know, we like to say more more of the will to steal than the skill to steal in his case, because um, the skill should still be there. So it's just a question of Uh, you know, is that something that as he sort of finishes settling the Chicago, does that come back a little bit or is that team context or, you know, something, something else that's dictating that, uh, speed is not a current part of the situation there.
0: I wondered when I was reading Greg's coverage of this Dansby Swanson story, whether the team had asked him to be a little more selective at the plate. You know, maybe they were trying, trying to inculcate a philosophy across the team of being more selective because they thought maybe that was something wrong, but it doesn't work for all the players. And maybe he, uh, after a month said, this isn't for me. And, you know, if you want production, I got to start swinging a little more like I used to, uh, Let's go to Cincinnati. They started rejuvenating their lineup this year by calling up some of the prospects they've been acquiring over the last few years during their tankapalooza after they tore down what was a pretty good borderline playoff team. In playing time today coverage of the Reds, analyst Zach Larson noted that shortstop Matt McClain is on fire. He said, uh, what do we think of McClain and all the other possible future Reds call-ups?
3: Yeah, it's an exciting time for the Reds because McCoyne is up. McCoyne is doing great. And he's kind of the, you know, the tip of the spear as far as the, um, you know, there is a lot more prospect talent coming behind him. So when the first one hits the way McCoyne has, you know, that only enhances the excitement, especially with all of the, you know, it seems like there are a number of other prospects who are having bumpy transitions too uh, the majors McLean is having no such problem. Um, you know, we, but even within the reds, you know, Spencer Steer started the year on the roster and he's been playing both first and third base and, you know, doing pretty well, uh, eight home runs with an 858 OPS so far. Uh, but McLean came up a couple weeks ago on May 15th and he's raking. Um, you know, 74 plate appearances, a 354 batting average, 940 OPS, um, easily displacing Jose Barrero and Kevin Newman, who had been sort of hand- handling, shall we say, shortstop before McClain came along. Um, to be fair, there's regression coming for McClain. He's not going to hit 354 all season. Um, he's already fallen. His batting average already fallen by 26 points since, uh, you know, <laughs> since we wrote him up earlier in the week. Um, and his, you know, there's more room for that. His out hitting ex- expected, expected BA by about 80 points. So the arrows sort of point down, but, you know, maybe not down that quickly. Um, so, you know, even though we're a little pessimistic, you know, you have to be pessimistic when a guy comes up and hits 354 with a 940 OPS, but, you know, there's room for him to, to regress without actually falling through the four.
0: Yeah, when you say he's out hitting his XBA by 80 points, that still puts him at 275 for an XBA, which is in this day and age is actually uh, really good and is something that uh, ought to make Reds fans and uh, people who have Matt McLean on their roster at great expense, no doubt, in fab, should be uh, feeling pretty good about it. I looked at the Reds on BaseballHQ.com's depth chart center and one of the other names in the shortstop column is currently in the minors and he's a real prospect too, Ellie De La Cruz.
3: Yeah, he is the Reds top prospect and you know on on any given list may be the top prospect in the game now for hitters or at least from a fantasy point of view, just an incredibly toolsy, ultimate ultimate, you know, power speed blend here. We've got him rated as a 9c prospect, which is an all-star ceiling with a 50/50 chance of attaining it. Um and that, uh, you know there's a little name similarity there. Our, our, our scouts you know equated his skill set to you know, currently injured, but still, uh, you know, super toolsy pirate shortstop O'Neill Cruz. So that's a you know a decent comp there that is also has the benefit of being easy to remember, right? But as, but as for Ellie, um, he's got a 905 OPS in Triple A. He's a switch hitter, hitting a home run. You know, it seems like every day, but it's actually 11 in 35 games and 11 stolen bases to go with it. So there's the delivery on that power speed potential I was talking about. Although you know, six caught stealings with those 11 stolen bases. So you know, if he in, in a theoretical big league call up situation, you have to wonder if the uh, if the green light would be flashed for him initially if he's uh, you know got some work to do on doing his technique there.
0: At the same time, when he gets to the big leagues, he's going to get some big league coaching about how to run the bases. Stolen base, uh, stolen bases are as much the result of skill and know-how as they are just raw speed. There's lots of guys who've come into baseball that could run like the wind and couldn't steal bases. And conversely, there's lots of slower guys who steal bases all the time because they know what they're doing out there. I and mean, Ricky Henderson was stealing bases when he was 40. And, and in, in numbers too. Uh, the guy that re- I'm reminded of when I look at... Uh, De La Cruz, which I've only done on YouTube videos and stuff is Eric Davis, a former red, a tall lanky, he's, he's taller than Eric Davis, but that wiry build also like Adolfo Soriano, uh, those kind of. Yeah, Soriano is a great
3: comp, totally.
0: And, you know, if he has half the career that uh, Soriano had, that wouldn't be bad. And he's got a lot of ceiling, as you said. You mentioned shortstop Spencer Steer is already on the big league club. He's playing third base and doing quite well. And there's a couple of other shortstops high in the Cincinnati prospect rankings who are on the way, at least.
3: Yeah, you can easily see why the Reds, you know, quickly moved Steer off of shortstop because there's... You know, this battalion of shortstops coming behind them. You got McQueen, who's already up, De La Cruz, who's coming. And even beyond those two, they've got Noel v. Marte, who came in the uh, Luis Castillo trade. He's got eight home runs and nine stolen bases at double A. And then Edwin Arroyo is yet another one who came in that same Castillo deal. He's further down in high A and struggling there. So he's probably a ways off. But, you know, it's sort of like, reminds me of a good high school team or something where, you know, you can't all play shortstop. So we're all going to take take all the shortstops. And if you can handle shortstop, we'll we'll go move you everywhere else. But, you know, these guys will all find their way to the majors. But we'll see, A, whether the Reds make some trades to balance off the positioning or turn some of them into pitching or other needs. And or what positions these guys pivot to because they're obviously – all athletic and can make a lot and, and can are young enough that they can make a bunch of transitions. But, uh, you know, it's it's got to be one of the more interesting questions, you know, what the future configuration of these guys look like in terms of who stays with the Reds and how they all piece together on the diamond.
0: That is going to be interesting. And then added to the mix, you Perhaps the most ready prospect of the bunch is a corner infielder, first base, third base guy, Christian Encarnacion Strand. He's OPSing 1117 at AAA, 14 homers in 160 plate appearances, and a 372 ISO, which is really something. So when you look at it, Ray, what's the future infield look like in Cincinnati, and when do you think the future might arrive?
3: Yeah, it's interesting. You sort of have to look at the Matt McClain situation. And, I mean, if uh, I'm from the outside looking in, but, you know, you can sort of project what the Reds are going to do. And if they're sitting here looking at McClain lighting it up, they're like, well, let's go call up the other guys and see if they can do that too, right? So, you know, it wouldn't be at all surprising to see and Strand get a chance to, you know, try to do, do, do what McClain is doing fairly soon. And, you know, then, you know, if that happens, or even if it doesn't, the Reds, you know, have this now or later question they have to answer where they're um, you, you know what's their you know they have this bright future with all these prospects but how quickly do they want to try to kick down that door they're you know a couple of games under 500 but they're ahead of the Cardinals and the Cubs in that sort of upside down NL Central where Pittsburgh's up the, up near the top of Milwaukee but St. Louis and Chicago who I think we're supposed to be better than those two teams are down at the bottom. So do the Reds want to try to, you know, make a run for the wild card either with their prospects or, as I said earlier, if, you know, they know that some of these prospects have to be redistributed anyway, can they start doing some of that in the July trade window? You know, it's interesting to see. Um, And, you know, then you get into all kinds of questions about whether you have confidence in the Reds front office to make those decisions, which... I will withhold comment on right now for fear of invoking the wrath of Doug
0: Dennis. (laughs) In Milwaukee, a a former Red Jesse Winker has been put on the 10-day IL. The Brewers recalled infielder Abraham Toro, Canadian guy from Montreal. He was down in AAA, and they designated first baseman Luke Voigt for assignment. Gosh, remember Luke Voigt for a while there? One of the really big hitters in baseball for the Yankees.
3: Led the short season in home runs in 2020, didn't he?
0: yes he did uh alan davison covering the winker story for playing time today so what's going on in milwaukee with the outfield situation jesse winker they've got some issues there
3: yeah winker no stranger to the il it's his first time there this year with a neck strain but he's certainly spent time there in the past the thing that's surprising or you know at least disappointing is that when healthy and he had been healthy up until now this year he's done absolutely nothing at the plate 108 at bats of a 204 batting average and a OPS that you know th- I'm doing the quick math in my head here does you know does not even reach 550. Um, and you know the two that 204 batting average is well backed by a 205 expected batting average and a power index of 25, which is which means his power is 25 percent of league average. There's nothing good going on there. So you know if the profile on Winker before used to be you know he's either productive at the plate or hurt he's been neither i guess now he's hurt but um he had been healthy and terrible so i mean best case glass half full maybe those neck issues have been lingering for a while and causing him to struggle so much this year i mean but you know turning going through the rest of that transaction void has also been terrible a 199 expected batting average no home runs so he sort of earned his way off that roster. Uh, that opens up the DH spot in Milwaukee without having either one of those guys there. So Toro comes back, and he's kind of more an infield depth guy. I wouldn't expect him to get a lot of playing time. But um, so debit some playing time from Winker, debit some from Voight. We got to give some to Toro. But in terms of the existing guys on the roster who pick up time, it's probably Owen Miller who is worked his way into the second base rotation lately and started out as i think a uh, sort of a bad side platoon guy but now is in more of an everyday, everyday role he's and he's more versatile and with that dh spot open it could be him um who who picks up a bunch of playing time in the short term especially if he keeps hitting
0: Let's ride this baby down the stretch with the NL pitchers. And as we came into this year's draft season, Philadelphia right-handed starter Aaron Nola was quite a tout favorite and a consensus third round ADP building off a really terrific 2022. This year so far, however, 470 ERA, about $11 in earned baseball HQ 5x5 value. Uh, Greg Pyron looked at Nola this week in his facts and flukes coverage. What should we be thinking about Aaron Nola given the skills and given the results?
3: Yeah this is a there's a couple layers to this one too you know noah if you think about his recent past you know 2021 you know his skills were excellent but the results were not there mostly because of uh poor luck factors and some bad timing on hits and home runs and that sort of thing but, but the skills were every bit as good in 2022 and the results finally followed so what we thought we had here was a really stable and elite skill set that you know the ERA had finally caught up to the ca- caught up to the skills, but the disappointing thing that Greg notes here is that the skills are now actually eroding a little bit. Uh, his current Noah's 22% strikeout rate is a career low, down from 29 last year, um, and the swing strike rate that underlies that is also down uh, 11% this year compared to 13 last. So not fooling guys, not getting the swing and misses. Velocities down too. Uh, he's now under 92 miles an hour, which is, you know, if not below average for this day and age, well, it probably is below average actually um, more fly balls too, which is leading the more home run per nine strand rates down to 64%. So th- again, the difference between this disappointing Aaron Nola and the 2021 disappointing Aaron Nola is this time he's earning it, which is kind of a bummer. Although Greg does point out that again, looking at April versus May splits, Things have been somewhat better in May, at least in the sense of he's keeping the ball on the ground more, which is probably a path to some success here, especially given that home ballpark he works in.
0: A couple of points better in strikeout rate and swinging strike rate, but it's not a good skill set at this point in time, that's for sure. And I wonder how soon it'll be before... You're starting to get emails and phone calls and texts from your league mates who happen to have Aaron Nola on their roster, seeing if you're interested, because he still carries a fairly big name. But I'd be I'd be a little bit leery of Aaron Nola at this point, unless I see a skills rebound. Uh, our bullpens columnist, Doug Dennis, you mentioned earlier, has been uh, touring through the majors virtually, looking at bullpens with a combination of approaches, including leverage and skills. He landed this week in Colorado, among other places, where he says right-hander Pierce Johnson has been getting the job done with the saves, but not without concerns.
3: Yeah, Doug does a great job with this series. Um, In terms of the Rockies, Pierce Johnson, you know, really solid 29% strikeout rate, uh, no-blown saves so far this year, which is not to say that it has not been rocky at times. Rocky, see what I did there?
0: (laughs) (laughs) He actually blew uh, a save just the other night, I think.
3: Finally blew a save, but uh, you can see why he's been sort of uh, towing a fine line here in that he's also had a 13% walk rate so that uh, you, you do the quick math there. 16% K minus BB is not great, let alone closer worthy. And he's given up 2.2 home runs per nine, which a yuck, but B yup, Colorado. Um, so you you net, you net all that out. You get a 4.76 expected ERA, a 1.89 whip, uh, you know, not closer worthy skills and saves are generally not worth that kind of damage, but that's largely in line with our projections. So there are some saves available there if you're desperate for them, but they come at quite a tax.
0: Doug says that Pierce Johnson is clearly not the best reliever in Colorado. So who is,
3: you know, li- listeners here and, you know, even my knee jerk reaction when reading this might've been, well, Daniel Bart, obviously, but, Doug says, "Not so fast. That the better reliever is Justin Lawrence. Bard is trying to recapture that 2022 form after an IL stint for uh, um, anxiety issues. Um, he's got a 19% strikeout rate, um, but a K minus BB of zero, a 5.78 xERA, and a 131 WHIP. So all of those are atrocious." And the projections are that he's going to stay atrocious, and he's 38 and clearly not the future of this bullpen. So that's what causes Doug to go further down the list and settles on Lawrence, who has a better projection: 30% strikeout rate, K/BB minus of 20%. Now we're talking about actual competent major league relief help here. Projected skills, expected ERA of 3.29. We can work with that. So overall, a much better skill set, um, and. Doug also went over to our leverage index charts, which are a great resource to see where the manager is placing their trust. And it's Johnson and Bard in lower leverage than Lawrence and Jake Bird. So when the game is on the line, it's Lawrence and Bird who are getting the ball.
0: And I guess, unfortunately for them and anybody who happens to have them on the roster, the highest leverage hasn't been happening in the ninth inning might be just the issue and it'll only be a matter of time before that happens. Uh, they also have left-handed veteran Brad hand, a veteran closer. What about him?
3: Yeah. Brad hand. Uh, I, I think we have to start calling him zombie Brad had at hand at this point, cause I've left him for dead several times now in, in his career, but he's been awesome this year. 36% strikeout rate K minus BB of 26%. Expected ERA of three, you know, very effective, um, So even though Lawrence has the best skills, Hand and maybe Bird are are competition for saves, even if Johnson and Bard are not in the picture. So monitor this, and maybe you can stash Lawrence for free. Maybe And and that's probably the way to go, because if Hand is still good in another month or so, it's easy to imagine that he's going to end up on a playoff team's bullpen um, and which might leave Lawrence higher in the pecking order here for August and September in some scenario where Johnson and Bird are both, excuse me, Johnson and Bard are both getting racked and hand isn't here anymore. Um, and, you know, we're a little bit out on the limb here. You know, that's a couple of dominoes that have to fall for things to work out for Lawrence. But on the plus side, Lawrence is probably free in your league. So, you know, low low opportunity cost to take a flyer here.
0: And finally, in the Arsenal report, Baseball HQ analyst Brant Chesser looks at pitchers who have altered or updated their pitch mixes. This is the former bailiwick of Tanner Smith who moved on to a big league front office. So these guys know what they're talking about. Uh, Usually the pitchers that get covered in the Arsenal report are guys who have struggled and they're changing things because they want to get better results. But this week, Brandt's report looks at a pitcher whose decimals last year: two ninety ERA, one sixteen WHIP. So apparently, right-handed starter Logan Webb of San Francisco does not believe in the adage "If it ain't broke, don't fix it" because it wasn't broke and he's fixed it.
3: Exactly. You know, constant improvement is probably the better the better way to think about this. Um, and in Webb's case, it's not so much a new pitch. Um, as much as just adjusting the the mix of his existing arsenal, uh, it, last year when, as you say, he was quite good, you know, he was using a sinker and slider in pretty much a uh, sinker slider and changeup all in pretty much identical um, usage, about a third of the time each for the sinker the slot, sinker slider and change. This year, it's more sinker, less slider. The changeup is still about a third, but the slider has fallen back to being pretty clearly his third pitch. So. Brant took a deeper dive, and when you look at these pitch mixes, you always want to look at, you know, think about the pitcher as sort of two separate guys, how he attacks lefties, how he attacks righties. And Brant did that and found that the sinker, not surprisingly, is what he uses to generate ground balls. He's got a 62% ground ball rate on the sinker, which is awesome. Um, The slider, he tends to feature, uh, web features, against righties, which is also pretty common. Um, And he gets both the swinging strikes and the weak contact there, a 176 batting average allowed. So that's good. Um, But, and the fewer sliders, the benefit of that seems to be he's not throwing the sliders to lefties. um, And that is keeping the ball in the park and reducing his uh, 19% home run per fly. We're expecting the 19% home run per fly that is hurting him right now to regress because you know, nineteen percent homer fly is a lot for everybody, especially in that park, and especially with Webb not having history of that. So that all nets out to Webb having a you know sub three ERA, a one eleven WHIP so far this year, and you know that's should you know that all looks quite sustainable and gets, puts Webb on track for another you know twenty dollar, maybe low twenty dollars, twenty to twenty four dollar season, um, based on you know just a subtle change to the sinker slider mix here.
0: It's a really interesting report. I certainly recommend it. And uh, Ray, I appreciate everything that you do. Recommend your work as well at BaseballHQ.com. We'll talk to you again next week. Awesome. Thank you, PD. Ray Murphy is the co-general manager, projections expert, writer, and analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Coming up, we have part two of our feature expert interview with Vlad Sedler. But let me first highlight another great item on the BaseballHQ.com site right now. In this week's Lineup Outlook column, analyst Greg Jewett looks at some players who have changed batting order slots lately, including Bobby Witt of Kansas City moving from leadoff to cleanup. And in this week's Facts and Fluke Spotlight, analyst Corbin Young goes deep into the stats and metrics of Tampa outfielder Randy Arozarena. The Lineup Outlook column and the Facts and Fluke Spotlight, just two more great resources online every week at BaseballHQ.com.
1: Baseball HQ Radio.
0: Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Vlad Sedler, the fab whisperer at FTN Fantasy and the co-host of the FTN Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Vlad, welcome back to part two. Thank you so much, Patrick. Appreciate it. When you were talking about Gavin Stone's not great outing recently, uh, four innings, eight hits, five runs, I think only four earned one strikeout, two walks. You noted that he opened and closed the game poorly, but he was okay in between. And I wonder when you look at an outing like that, how much weight do you put on it? And how do you, how much weight do you put on the bad start, bad finish, good middle?
2: Uh, so for the first part of that question, I try not to weigh it too much at all. And I think uh, that's something that, uh, in general like sports fans uh, or fantasy players uh, over adjust for they'll see you know, Bryce Miller come out there and have that game and all of a sudden hey he's uh, he might be a top 20 starting pitcher the rest of the season and the type of uh, trade offers that come in for someone someone like that is pretty wild uh Gavin Stone clearly wasn't uh, wasn't ready uh doesn't i don't I'm you know, just it is what it is it's unfortunate uh and it's just another it's a really good example that just because a pitcher is a is a good prospect and attached to a good organization and a good pitching park like Dodger Stadium, and with the Dodgers, it doesn't necessarily mean that these things are always going to work out well. Uh, within the start, I mean, of course, you want to see you know adjustments and 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 efficiency and durability, uh, but again, it's uh, there will be a time when uh, when Gavin Stone will be a, va- a valuable pitcher, I'm pretty sure, and likely a post hype guy for for all we know. Uh, yeah, it, w- people are so. Uh, affected by like just what recently happened uh that i think a lot of people are like off you know him and, and brandon fought people are just off that train they're like oh those guys will just never be good i think maybe even more so in the case of brandon fought but guess what
0: these guys can easily make adjustments be back in a couple of months and throw a few gems Exactly what we were saying before, keep an eye on your league's free agent list because the guys will drop guys that you wouldn't and uh, there's some opportunity there. I noticed that Gavin Stone didn't really give up a lot of hard contact in that first start, which is promising, but 26% line drives, then 36, then 46 in his subsequent two starts. Now the mantra of Baseball HQ and good analysts everywhere is to assess the skills, not the outcomes and not the roles. But what do we do when we get a mixed bag of skills in a in a relatively small handful of games?
2: It's really tough to uh, to, to, to to really quantify it or to to really make some sort of um, conclusion uh, from it. We really just need a lot more. And I think you know, Bryce Miller is a good example of that. I mean, how how long did we really think that? To, that run was going to last, and of course, you never want to see it go down like that with a you know big eight earned run outing. Uh, but when you look uh, under the hood, I mean, the guy was essentially throwing all fastballs, and it's a heck of a pitch. But at some point, he's going to have to throw other stuff. Pitcher uh, hitters will adjust, and and things like that happen. So, I really, really try hard not to uh, to make uh, too many sweeping generalizations off of a small sample, and especially with um, with sort of mixed signals in terms of the uh, the, the metrics.
0: In the preamble to your Week 10 Trust the Gut Fantasy Baseball Fab Guide at your website, you said you now think that Stone is pretty sure to be demoted. What made you think that after not thinking that?
2: Uh, It was was a combination of the fact that Julio Urias was back soon. It was the fact that Michael Grove was looking good in rehab and uh, throwing uh, at uh, excessive velocity more so than we've been used to seeing with him and just the fact that it was very clear that he wasn't ready. Um, and, uh, it just, it just made sense. There was no reason for him to, to come in and, and make another sp- start. Uh, and he was just done. It was really unfortunate that that was one of that was the peacock start, uh, on, uh, you know, the NBC peacock uh, app where, uh, the, I mean, you could just tell it was a, at least, at least I could, I think that it was a different ball. I mean, everybody was smacking in and it was, you know, the, the raised Dodgers. I mean, everybody wants to see lots of offense and you were just caught by the wayside. So, uh, it was, it was unfortunate that, uh, him, and actually Josh Fleming is another pitcher. I had them both on my team, and and it's just kind of a good note for myself. I want to know what these standalone games are on Apple or Peacock where the ball might be different. And again, this is just me making assumptions. I could be wrong. That's just what it looked like. But I, I want to know who those pitchers are. So if they are fringe guys, maybe I shouldn't start them and I shouldn't add them.
0: So you think that the league's throwing tighter balls out there to juice the offense for these special games? I think so. I don't, I don't, I'm not saying I think you're wrong. I wouldn't put anything past major league baseball with the baseballs. I mean, they've certainly proved in the past that they're willing to doink around with the ball to, for marketing purposes. So anyway, so you've got Gavin Stone, you think he's going to get sent down. That'll leave you and other fantasy managers who have him rostered with bench or cut decisions. How do you decide when to drop a guy in this situation?
2: I think in a situation like that, uh, it depends on the format, of course. I think if you're in a like 18 and up person league then that or an NL only perhaps with a deep bench or stashes available. I mean maybe those are the situations where you leave a guy like Gavin Stone. but other than that, he's an easy cut. I mean, for me in a 15, I had no problem cutting him in a 12. It's almost it's an even easier decision uh, because he was already a fringe guy to start. So uh, yeah, those are usually the decisions to cut stand out to you. Um, it's the other ones, like I was telling you about the McKinstry or or Jake Berger, where you know, the the underlying metrics look good, and the uh, the sometimes temporary situation of in McKinstry's case a bunch of lefties coming up, or, or in Berger's case maybe losing playing time. Sometimes it's if they're performing well and you see their underlying metrics, we see Berger you know smashing the ball. Chances are the White Sox are going to find a way to get him in the lineup. So those are cases where I was probably uh, I probably shouldn't have, have cut.
0: In the pod, you guys also noted that there would be a fab splurge on Bobby Miller of the Dodgers, again, on the strength of pretty much one good outing at Atlanta, but also minor league background as well. And uh, you, you mentioned that he's throwing five pitches effectively, but again, sounded a cautionary note that in the fab climate these days, there's going to be some very aggressive bidding in situations where aggressiveness might not be the prudent way to go. How do we decide when we should go heavy on these bids and when we should maybe hold back and make caution or more cautious bids i guess it's a dependent of
2: one's uh roster situation at a current time i mean we've never seen an influx of free agent pitchers uh rookies coming into the league like that of such high prospect status like one after another one week after another and i feel like uh, sammy touched on it on the pod like he wanted to you know we kind of wanted to play it safe throughout the season but at a certain point when your pitching's getting hurt and everyone keeps grabbing all these pitchers you you, you say to yourself you know i want one I think I want one you got to c- kind of make a decision. So uh, one of the things people may not do that they maybe should do is f- think back to how you felt about these guys in the preseason and what you've seen to this point in the minors Um, and then keep in mind team context and um, possibility that they'll stick in the rotation and kind of factor that all together before you make a decision, right? Because so many of us were drafting these 50 round draft champions preseason where we had to be taking uh, some of these rookie pitchers, and so obviously we dug into them, we studied them, we had some idea of whether they'd be called up or not. Otherwise, we wouldn't be drafting them. So, kind of, I think it's important next year to keep in mind to sort of tap into some of that preseason work that you've done uh, to basically confirm or deny uh, whatever you were thinking preseason. Do you keep all your
0: preseason research?
2: I do. Yes, I I keep it. I, I like to look back on it from time to time.
0: How do you organize it?
2: Thankfully, it's all on the, uh, the, the site for the most part. I like suppose all my yeah, research yeah. turns out into, yeah, it turns into articles. And then I just, I mean, I just yeah, sort it within my files.
0: You mentioned when you guys were talking about Miller and Stone that you're a Dodger fan. How does being a fan affect your fab bidding and start sit decisions and fantasy management in general?
2: I try not to let it. I know it's ah uh, it, it's difficult, but I think over the years I've gotten better at, uh, Separating fandom from fantasy. Um, I know this is supposed to be fun. Um, I know it's not quite a business, but for a lot of us, uh, there's uh, there's good money involved, and so uh, you can't allow yourself to be clouded by such judgment. Like not everyone is uh, uh, has the ability to overpay on a Cal Ripken Jr. You know, and 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 win their league because they really love them. I try to be even harder on my Dodgers. I guess you could say so. uh, Maybe you know, almost like a reverse bias to to balance out that uh, inherent bias. I think. Uh, but it's tough. I mean, especially like Bobby Miller, to me, uh, I was, uh, on team Miller over stone in the preseason. Um, and I think maybe I was just enamored by the fact that he throws a hundred and, um, you know, just, I figured he'd be more volatile, but to me, he just kind of felt like a superstar future starting pitcher. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, it's really difficult when you're, you know, I mean, sometimes I'm on, I'm you know, doing work and there are no games on. And it's like the Dodgers insider comes on. And so you get to see, like I got to see when Gavin Stone walks in and talks to Dave Roberts and how Dave Roberts congratulates him for his first major league start and hugs him and all. that. And it's hard not to be attached to that sort of thing because you have that local uh, bias on it.
0: I think it could be useful also, though, to watch the body language of a manager or the other guys on the team when they're looking at a young player and you think, well, this guy seems to be hitting the right notes for one of, uh, another better way to say it. And maybe he's going to get a little more rope than he might if everybody was scowling at him and, and trying to figure out, you know, doesn't look like this guy's really got it kind of thing so but talking of biases and leaving out teams uh, you and maddie would discuss personal biases that we get and how to manage them Uh, what are some of the biases we have as as fantasy managers going beyond uh, team fandom but what biases do we have as fantasy managers do you guys think that really could affect our ability to be effective
2: Uh, the one we talked about mainly on that pod was uh, investment bias the fact that uh, we are a little bit uh more likely to uh, when a player we did not invest in during the season does not perform well, we just kind of confirm our our like oh yeah hey we we got that right uh, you know and then vice versa we, we'll cut a little slack to some players that aren't doing well but are we're heavily invested in or we'll do some wish casting in some cases like uh, you know you you, you spent two fifty on Taj Bradley and you you think he should be up in the rotation he's better than Josh Fleming right but hey we're not uh kevin cash we're not management there we're not making those decisions so it's really tough to sometimes wish cast uh for those type of things so that's one i think another big one is obviously uh recency bias and i think it's the biggest uh bias in in fantasy sports because we are so um enamored by what a player had just done it affects uh, fab prices so much um over the week like uh, pitcher throws a gem over the weekend or you know mark leiter junior grabs a save over the weekend uh or um, you know a couple of home runs out of uh, somebody, and it just the price just soars. And of course, Twitter and social media doesn't help that cause because then um, the player's more on the forefront. Everyone's talking about him. Everyone wants to be the first to tweet about him, and so that that affects it. Uh, but on the flip side, the recency of a player that has been doing poorly—you know, you had brought up Brian De La Cruz earlier—like those are the best opportunities. That's when we pounce. And so I'm always a big proponent of looking ahead at the schedule uh, and seeing you know. Uh, A guy that's been struggling. Hey, maybe it's he's been facing, uh, you know, Astros and Dodgers pitching, and now all of a sudden he's going to go to Coors Field or or Reds pitching or whatnot, and um, those type of things make such a big difference. And I think um, we need to continue to to work on our own personal biases to make ourselves better fantasy managers.
0: That recency bias thing you mentioned uh, caught my ear because something I started doing. I think this season actually was I try to keep a a log of the starting pitcher and uh, all the starting pitchers and see how far ahead I can plan. I like to get out a month ahead if I can to see what the next six starts might be like, seven starts might be like for a guy. I mean, obviously there are changes and yet you can't always count on it. But especially if a guy's ticketed for the first start against a weak team in a a rotation, he might not get the first one, but he's likely to get the second one or the third one maybe. You know, you got a bit of, of leeway. And I grabbed Michael Lorenzen really early in the season in one of my leagues, just because his next five or six starts were all against like Oakland, Kansas City, you know, uh, all of these relatively poor teams. And it it paid off. I, I'm still streaming him now, even though it's a, a little bit riskier because he never strikes anybody out, but... In the podcast with uh, Eric Samalski and Sammy Reed, they both mentioned the importance of actually watching prospects as part of their decision-making process. I remember Eric talked about Bryce Miller's poise and presence. And later, I think he said something to the effect that we need to be willing to ignore the broader data that suggests the player is not what our eye test makes us think. And his example was Casey Schmidt of San Francisco. He saw him hit one home run, thought the swing was very impressive, even though his minor league stats say he's not re- really a genuine power source. I don't think that's good process. I don't trust my own eyeballs cause I don't know that much about uh, scouting and stuff. How much weight do you put on your own eyeballs when you're making these kind of decisions, especially when the data don't back them up?
2: Um, I, I don't really, because a lot of times I'm not seeing the, 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 the player, you know, in the, in their first at bat or their first start. A lot of times I'm, I'm not able to catch that. Um, but, uh, I, I don't really. Um, I, I, I don't, like you said, I don't know enough about scouting. I don't trust my eyeballs. I'm not, uh, you know, Eric and Sammy, they, they grew up playing baseball. They were, you know, coached with it. They coached themselves and they know every, you know, those, those little nuances and they maybe know what to look for. Uh, for me, it's a little bit more just in, intuition. I mean, I I'll be honest. I can't think of an example now, but I'm not even joking. There are players that I have sort of, uh, uncovered or kind of were, was early on of of players that just ended up becoming studs based on their name. I'm not even joking, you. I know as silly as it sounds. I'm like this guy sounds like a major league stud, and um, yeah, it doesn't always work out. But just uh, who knows? It's these silly little things. It's our silly little game. But uh, but but some things there's there's more to it than just uh, you know what our eyes may tell us or may falsely tell us.
0: Is that where Roto gut and trust the gut and all that stuff came from?
2: It did. Yes. A lot, a lot of uh, early success in the the early 2000s on those type of uh, very little researched and just kind of, you know, feeling the intuition on things.
0: I don't think you can discount it. You know, I, I know that uh, I, we all have to really rely on data more than anything, but yeah, sometimes, sometimes I don't think it's necessarily just intuition. I think it's like, because you have experience at this, because you're educated about this, you think about it a lot. I wonder if, if those feelings enter us because we're attuned to them because of all the other stuff that we do in playing the game and studying the game and writing about the game and podcasting about the game. I think that, uh, that that's, it's an informed intuition. It's not just like blasting from outer space, like in, into your head, like a, a alien ray. 100%. Most
2: of it is, uh, it's baked in, I guess you could say it's, uh it is stat infueled and um, I'm looking at it. So uh, looking at all this stuff so much, you, you already know, you know, you, you know, all the players, you know, Oh, this guy's a soft tosser. You know, this guy uh, is more volatile is, you know, can't always hit the strike zone, but he hits 96 and you sort of factor that into your um, fantasy decisions. We obviously obviously don't want a team full of, I guess um, you know, uh, Marcus Stroman's and, you know, uh, low strikeout guys, but you don't want all, you know, the fireballers as well, because then your whip will get damaged. So it's always, a, it's always a balancing act. It's one of the beauty, uh, beauties of, of, fantasy sports.
0: Getting back to, uh, analyzing players, if we have prospect pitcher call-ups and we're thinking about maybe putting in significant bids or just being interested in acquiring them at all, how should we account for the possibility that there's going to be innings limits, which really, uh, limit their ability to contribute to our fantasy stats?
2: It's important. It's, it's one of the reasons why a couple of my preseason um, avoids or players that I was not drafting whatsoever at their price tag, uh, why I ended up avoiding them. And the reasons why they're not working out may not be the reason why I was uh, not into them, but it was the innings limit. And two of those guys were Dustin May. He was going around 150, and Grayson Rodriguez around 200. I, uh, overall, this is you know based on ADP. Uh, I just, based on my valuations, I could not even come close to taking those guys, no matter how good their uh, their ballparks, their team context, all these things were, because of the fact that I knew that they were going to be limited to 125 innings, and I just knew at some point, yes, I would have to pick up replacement value, but I just didn't want to deal with it. There were way too, there were way too many. You know, we're we're drafting 360 or 450 players you know, total in a pool. There are way too many players that it's okay to kind of cut down. Um, in those two cases, those fades. Got lucky because they got for me because they got hurt. You know, it ended up working out for me. It's not the way I like to see it. Um, well, at least in Dustin's case, and in Grayson's, he was just unfortunately not great. Uh, but he'll be back. He'll be good. You know, he's. He, I think he'll be fine. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it's something to consider. It's another reason why maybe I think I wasn't too big on uh, Yuri Perez because I knew he would be limited. I know at some point they'll you know, send him back down or do a Phantom IL stint or something because he's also limited on the innings. And no matter how amazing he will be for the starts that he'll make. Uh, I may not have him there down the stretch when I really need him. So it's something I need to factor into my fab decisions. It didn't keep people from spending uh, 250 plus on him. then that's for sure.
0: Including me. That was a situation where I, I had a team that injuries were just killing my rotation. When you're looking at these innings caps, I notice a lot of times people say, well, he's only got X number of innings from the previous year, but they're not counting in the minor league innings. How do you account for minor league innings when you're thinking about what the subsequent years, major league inning outlook might be?
2: I would give it a, like a 25% either way. Um, usually, and I'll include, I'll just, you know, just add up the, the, the minor and major league innings from the previous season or just the minor league innings and just, uh, take it from there. So. Um, and and that's one of the issues uh, the problems I had with uh, Brandon fought. It's why I was really into him last season. He was um, there. Were, not only did he lead lead the minor leagues in strikeouts last year, uh, he also led in innings and also number of seven plus inning starts. So there was something about him that just seemed like, oh wow, this guy could really be major league ready. Um, and I just kind of remember when he first came up, that first start wasn't good, and we we just like, oh, that'll be fine. We'll bypass it, and then started, you know. Everyone's eye test on that point, I mean, everybody was saying the same thing, a uh, trained or an untrained eye, like, man, that fastball just doesn't look good. looks very below average. Then you start to read some stuff like, uh, you know, Lance Brodowski, uh, you know, with his shape and, and, and all that stuff, which I learned from, I mean, I, I don't really know much about it. I, I, you know, it's interesting to me. And then the things he says matches some of that too. So it's like, okay, well, maybe Brandon Fogg just isn't for me now. I still think, you know, I don't think he had that success in the minors by accident not only success, it was dominance. So at some point he'll, you know, he'll figure out his pitch mix or work on this and work on that and, and he'll be back. So the one thing i I know it's kind of a change from your original question, but I'm never fully out on players, I guess you can say.
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Vlad Settler from FTN Fantasy Sports and Vlad, going back to your trust the gut fab preview from last Saturday, you also gave some names, not just for that weekend, but that we might be looking at this coming weekend. And the first one was Chicago closer, Liam Hendricks. I don't know if you saw the video of him returning, but boy, if it didn't bring a tear to your eye, I don't know what will. We're not 100% sure how slowly the White Sox are going to ease him back into the closer role. Not that anybody in Chicago is exactly overachieving in that role now, but what are you expecting of Hendricks and what are you expecting his bids to look like once he, he seems to have seized on the closer role or even just when he's first eligible this week?
2: I think with name brand recognition alone and the fact that a lot of, I mean, everybody could use some saves, right? Even if you're, yeah, even if you have the uh, Felix Batista, Jordan Romano combo and you paid up, um, you're you're still going to want to try to go after somebody like that, especially if you have money. Uh, And I don't think, I think he's one of the rare cases where no matter what he does, like he could have two more outings this week where he gives up two runs in each of those. Uh, And I don't think it'll affect his bid price much. I think folks are still going to want to spend up on him. Assuming he's going to take over that role at some point, it's not for sure, right? I mean, I mean, nothing no. is in life. Uh, but I mean, I am invested in a few spots where I either you know, picked him up on the cheap early after he was dropped in uh, in early April uh, when it seemed like he might be coming back at some point, or I'm you know, drafted him in the league there towards the end, knowing that he would take up uh, one of my bench spots for quite some time. Uh, so I don't know. I think. I think it'll be a couple of weeks. Uh, Kendall Graveman has taken over Fernando Lopez and he's been holding it down all right. He's, he's been actually getting some save opportunities, converting them, which is fine, which is nice. Uh, but, but who knows? I mean, the White Sox are, man, they're, they really are a mess, like you said.
0: What are you advising for bid levels on Atlanta starter Mike Soroka? He came back, but boy, talk about a checkered in injury history and a relatively low strikeout profile as well. Uh, what do you think about Mike Soroka as a bid target? He's another
2: guy. It's uh, it, he's not quite a shiny new toy because it you know, obviously he's an old, he's an older toy and he doesn't strike out a lot of guys and they that's not really shiny. What is shiny is Atlanta. He's an Atlanta Brave. People love the, the 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 pitchers that know can provide tons of run support for them and and the Braves do that in spades. Uh, and so uh, I myself, he was only available in one of my leagues. It was a twelve team OC. I had maybe three hundred left. And, uh, I put in a, keep him honest on Bobby Miller at 62. He went for like hundred plus. And then my second bid was Mike Soroka just cause he was available in that league. Uh, and I bid 42. I think I got him 42 to 21. And of course the instant regret of, Oh man, I should have gone 25, but you, you can never do that. Right. You just no. you, you go with your number. Uh, and that's what I felt it was worth it to me. And, um, and it's weird uh, in my head when you see it's, you know, it's Mike Soroka looking good in the minors, you know, good pitcher before with ratios, uh, you see his name, and then you see versus Oakland, you're like, ah, this is a gimme. And it's so funny how baseball humbles you so quickly because uh, he got wrecked, and uh, he can be just fine in the next start, but it's it's just funny how that works, right?
0: Might actually help if he's available in your league, that Oakland start might suppress his bids a little bit and allow you to maybe do a little better because of the recency bias. In general, Vlad, what's your position on pitchers who do have that multiple previous injury issue?
2: It's, uh, it's 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 uh, for pitchers. I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, absolutely concerning. I think it's something that maybe people don't uh, factor into their bid prices. They just kind of go with um, with market price because sometimes market range or you know bid range is set by um, it, it doesn't factor that in. It's just that oh, this is the new name and we all need him, and you know that there's someone in your league is going to spend that. So if you want him, you're going to have to spend X. So that happens sometimes, and that's unfortunate. And we forget about the injury history part of it.
0: What about hitters, uh, Minnesota infielder Royce Lewis is going to be available in a ton of leagues this week, ton of injuries for him and an uncertain role in Minnesota. How aggressively do you think we should be looking at Royce Lewis as a bid target?
2: Um, I mean, not necessarily. I wouldn't go crazy. I think people are going to spend a lot more than they should. It's something that I'm going to have to formulate uh, before I write it up here on uh, on, on Saturday morning, but the fact that Minnesota is very non-aggressive on the base base paths, I think they're bottom three, bottom five in stolen bases total, don't really let their guys run. So, you know, obviously you want your fantasy assets to be able to run a little bit. Um, so you probably aren't going to get many stolen bases there. He does have the lengthy injury history and the team has a lot of parts, right? You got somebody like Donovan Solano who has no power, but he's hitting in like the middle of the lineup every time they're, uh, you know, they're facing a lefty, I believe. And then uh, just, a, you know, they have a very platoony type lineup. So I think it's it's absolutely possible that uh, he does find himself in a platoon, or even if he struggles, he gets sent down. Uh, I myself am not planning to, to spend a lot on Roy, Royce Lewis.
0: You also mentioned keeping some powder dry for the next wave of prospects, possibly including Cincinnati infielders, Ellie DeLaCruz, who is it's unbelievable what he's doing in the minor leagues, frankly. And Christian and Karnassian Strand is also bashing There's guys like that. How are you managing the possibilities of more prospects?
2: I have self recalibrated to the fact that I'm not really going to go after many of them. The fact that I, I just I just uh, realize that I don't have a lot of money to spend for them. They're probably not worth it to me. And so I'm going to just essentially stay away. I don't think, you know, if, if someone's a lifesaver for someone, hey, that's great. But it takes you know twenty three pieces to a roster for it to work. It's not just one piece, uh, and so I'm just going to look at um, capitalizing on other people's mistakes at this point. You know, for uh, uh, bucking you know buck and twoing them here and there uh, over this course of the rest of the season.
0: Well, Sammy Reed said that fabbing in fantasy baseball is a lot like being a general manager in the NFL draft. We're all so bad at predicting which players will succeed that we're actually better off taking a lot of small shots, bids of 20 to 50, than a few big shots of 200 plus. You've talked about having spent aggressively in some of your leagues. I've spent very aggressively in some of mine for injury reasons and roster reasons. What did you think of Sammy's general idea though, that we don't really know what's going on, so we're better off like throwing a lot of darts rather than trying to hit the bullseye with two or three?
2: Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good approach. I think it's something we see with a lot of the uh, um, more veteran, uh, successful, um, high stakes players. Uh, a lot of them aren't spending uh, a pretty penny. Um, I did a recording with Dave Potts this week, who's, you know, to me, the best. I mean, he is the most, uh, the most winningest, I guess you could say, fantasy player against all, you know, kind of across the board. And, and he, for the most part, he admits a lot of his biases and, and some of his, uh, uh, stubbornness, like players that he drafted that he's just going to hold. He's, he's not going to just, you know, kind of, uh, you know, drop them too quickly. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's, Sammy's a really smart guy. It's 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 always it's why I love to 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 be able to to talk to him in a, in a public forum like that because um he does have those good uh uh you know relates to to other things in life in in a way you don't really think about. And I know he um you know he he then ended up what spending uh a lot on Yuri Perez or something like that because yeah. he just hey, he went for it. He wanted to splash.
0: Yeah, right after he finished saying the, the part about don't spend heavily, he said, of course I myself have spent heavily in quite a few instances mm-hmm. and he mentioned the Yuri Perez thing, but he said, he kind of had a reason. He said it was a combination of fear of missing out, which is a bias that you should probably avoid, but also desperation. His roster needed help and at a certain point you just have to say, I know this is probably a bad idea, but it's one of those things where I'm not going to be able to work myself back into back into contention Winning a bunch of $25 guys and and making incremental gains. I need a, I need a splash because I'm so far back. If I don't get a splash that I got no chance anyway. Yeah. Yeah.
2: We, we, we all can uh, only take on so many, uh, so many poor Steve Matt starts in a row.
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Vlad Sedler from FTN Fantasy, and Vlad. I always like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some boons and bane's. And this last few weeks, we've been looking at the coming weekend's fab runs. That's your specialty. So let's continue that. We'll start with uh, players who look like good value for the weekend, bad value for the weekend. Let's start with your boons. These are players you think maybe worth a bid. Oh, and and I'm
2: sorry, I I I took it as uh, for the upcoming sort of short term. Sure, uh, but I was going to mention. Yeah, my my boon is Patrick Bailey, uh, catcher for for the San Francisco Giants, and there's something happening here with this offense. Um, it's a lot less, I guess, boring uh, than in previous years. But uh, he's now started at catcher six of the last seven. Uh, they're going to go to Coors Field and play a series there, I think, as of next Monday. And uh, people need catchers, and not to say that he's going to be amazing uh, at the uh, you know at bat, but. Um, I think it's pretty clear that uh, Joey Bart is just, yeah, you know, it's just not working out. Not every, you know, one drafted early with a big uh, pedigree necessarily is going to be the man. I mean, Patrick Bailey was a first round pick himself uh, in 2020. So that's my, that's my boon.
0: How about a pitcher who could be a boon for this weekend? I think a guy that,
2: uh, might have some nice uh, long-term success who we can pick up early and possibly for a pretty low price might be Mike Mayers of the Kansas City Royals. Uh, you know, he had an opener here, but we've now seen him consecutively stretched out. And I think we'll see him as a normal starting pitcher in a really good home park. Uh, I think he's somebody that we can get for cheap that could potentially make a difference. Uh, and then next week, he would line up for the Marlins and uh, and, the, and the Orioles.
0: And let's go to your bane's. These are plays you think are likely to be overbid this weekend again. And let's start with a batter who could be a bane.
2: Uh, I this was a tough one, but uh, one that came to mind would be Drew Waters. Um, he's somebody that uh, I don't. I don't think he has a lot of power. It's not a good home park for that. Um, he could run, but he hasn't really been. And then he's kind of mired in the bottom of that lineup there in Kansas City and a platoon bat at that. So if uh, you see some, I mean, you almost hope it's a case where he just has a really hot weekend and just, you know, steals a bunch of bases his hits a bunch of homers and then have people overbid only to see him fall into a his platoon again and not hit against the lefties that are coming up in the early part of next week. And finally, how about a pitcher who could be a bane this weekend? So this is a bias and it's a, it's a bias against Mr. Kyle Hendricks. And uh, he's just somebody that um, I just don't want any part of it. Just that I do have certain players that, um, you know, I just, Maybe they can turn things around. We've we've seen pitchers do that in the past. Uh, you know, obviously Cliff Lee later on in his career, but uh, I don't know. This is a, a low strikeouts guy. This is a guy that's you know you know a little bit of an injury history over the last year and a half, and uh, going to be pitching in Wrigley Field where it's going to get really warm and the wind's going to be blowing out, and uh, I kind of want no part of that. So um, he's going to be possibly tempting folks this week with a, a two start week here, um, coming off that gem against the the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, Next week, he's going to get the Padres in San Diego and then the Giants in San Francisco. So I think that might be a deadly combo there.
0: Vlad Sedler's Boons, Patrick Bailey of San Francisco, Mike Mayers of Kansas City, his Baines Drew Waters of Kansas City, and Kyle Hendricks of the Cubs. Vlad, this has been a treat. Tell our listeners where they can keep up with your work.
2: Uh, I can be found on uh, Twitter at RotoGut. That's RotoGut and all my work at ftnfantasy.com. Patrick, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. I love the the pace of this. I like it gets my brain kind of firing on all synapses and faster than usual. So I appreciate uh, speaking with you today.
0: Oh, it was absolutely my pleasure. Don't forget to also, Vlad, has a terrific podcast. You can find that on whatever pod getter you're using. What's the best way to search for it, Vlad?
2: Uh, Just FTN Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Uh, That'll do it. But uh, yeah, everywhere that uh, you can find podcasts in, in the world.
0: Really interesting podcast, good guests. Uh, Vlad Sedler, a good guest here at Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you so much, PD Vlad Sedler is the fab whisperer at FTN Fantasy and the co-host of the FTN Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Coming up, we have our Baseball HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute, Frequent Flyer, and My Extra Innings are on the way. But first... One last reminder about the resources available to you when you subscribe to BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We have player performance validation in Facts and Flukes, news updates in Playing Time Today and roster forecasting in Playing Time Tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse, long shot suggestions in the Speculator column, team injury reports, and player injury analysis in the Big Hurt column, Gaming Strategy Analysis for Roto, Points Leagues, NFBC, and Alternative Formats, and Groundbreaking Fantasy Baseball Research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, updated depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. So when you add it all up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business.
1: Baseball HQ Radio.
0: Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Baseball HQ commentaries. Coming up, we have the frequent flyer and my extra innings comment, and leading off, it's the minor league minute. And here with a look at Reds shortstop prospect Ellie De La Cruz is Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon.
1: The Cincinnati Reds may have one of the lowest payrolls in the National League, but they've been playing surprisingly well of late. Some of that has to do with the promotion and development of shortstop Matt McLean, whom we covered in a previous version of the minor league minute. Since being promoted, McLean has been productive at the plate and has emerged as one of the Reds' best defenders in the infield. Having said all of that, it will be interesting to see what the Reds do when they eventually promote the most dynamic prospect still in the minors, the 21-year-old stud, Ellie De La Cruz. Notice I said when they promote De La Cruz, not if. De La Cruz has been the talk of the scouting community since his breakout season in 2021 that saw him hit 296 with a .538 slugging percentage between rookie ball and low A. De La Cruz followed that up with a 304, 359, 586 slash line last year with 28 home runs and 40 stolen bases between high A and double A. When I saw De La Cruz play in Lansing early last year, you could immediately see the standout raw tools, especially the easy power, the plus arm, and the blazing speed. But, as his detractors correctly noted, there was so much swing and miss to his game that it raised doubts about his ability to continue to hit for average as he moved up. After all, few prospects enjoy immediate success with an 8% walk rate and a 31% strikeout rate. Since last year, De La Cruz has been even more impressive, routinely launching moonshots into the night for AAA Louisville and gunning the ball from short at 99 miles an hour. Dayla Cruz did start the year slowly hitting 195 in April with two walks and 18 strikeouts and forty-one at bats, prompting some to wonder if it would take him some time to adjust to more advanced pitching. De La Cruz put those concerns to rest, walking twenty one times in May while blasting 10 home runs and posting a 1203 OPS. It seems unlikely that the Reds will move McLean off a shortstop due to his stellar defense, but it also seems hard to imagine the club will let De La Cruz linger much longer in the minors. Savvy fantasy managers in shallow leagues where De La Cruz isn't already owned should pounce now, and those who have to wait for a player to be promoted should check out the daily call-ups each morning as you have for a cup of coffee because this is one player you don't want to miss out on. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon.
0: Baseball HQ Scouting Team member Rob Gordon has his Minor League Minute report regularly here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for the frequent flyer, where we look at a player who might be available on your league's free agent list and who has the skills to contribute to the success of your teams. Here with a look at Atlanta right-handed starter A.J. smith Shaver, is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky.
4: He's a tall, projectable, hard-throwing right-hander, according to Baseball HQ's 2023 Minor League Baseball Analyst, and he's potentially making big strides toward Atlanta's rotation in 2023. At six foot three and two hundred and five pounds, twenty year old AJ Smith Shaver has an ideal pitching frame and a bunch of premium tools in his pocket, according to the May thirty first edition of Call-Ups on baseballhq.com. Wait, did you catch that? AJ Smith Shaver is only twenty years old and has already arrived in the big leagues. Wow. It's been a bit of a whirlwind for smith Shaver, according to Baseball HQ's Sarah Sanchez in her May 20th Plague Time Tomorrow column on BaseballHQ.com. And let's face it, Sarah's Plague Time Tomorrow column on May 20th was spot on, given that Atlanta called up smith Shaver on May 30th, 10 days later. So when a high school draftee taken in the 7th round, toward 17th overall just two drafts ago in 2021, makes it up to the big leagues his third season with only 110 innings pitched under his belt. One must take notice, according to Baseball HQ's Matthew St. Germain in the aforementioned May 31st edition of Call-Ups on BaseballHQ.com. Plus, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Braves beat writer Justin Toscano tweeted on May 30th that the plan is for Smith-Shauver to pitch out of the bullpen, not start. That's why 20-year-old projectable hard-throwing Atlanta Braves fireballer A.J. Smith-Schauver, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Obviously, pitching out of the bullpen may significantly limit smith Shaver's perceived fantasy upside in most leagues. However, here's something worthy of consideration. As the Athletics' David O'Brien pointed out, on May 31st, the Braves promoted Spencer Strider four times his first and only minor league season in 2021, moving him from low A on opening day to high A, double A, and triple A in a total of 22 games, including 21 starts before his major league debut in a relief role in the final series of the regular season. Strider was 22 at the time, according to O'Brien. Sound familiar? Nothing surprises me anymore how quick these guys advance up the ladder and do well, Braves manager Brian Snitker was quoted as saying in the same May 31st article. He's a young kid, Snitker continued, referencing Smith-Shauver. We're going to put him in the bullpen, pitch him out of there for a while, kind of like we did with Spencer last year. Note the comparison to Spencer Strider and his progression in that quote. Snitker further offered in The Athletic that I think his future's going to be starting, but relieving is kind of a way to break him in. On that basis, with a 109 ERA through three levels of the minors through June second, 2023, maybe it's time to break 20-year-old Atlanta Braves righties, A.J. smith Shaver into your lineup as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com.
0: Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for extra innings, my weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about my reverse Lima plan pitching staff. Like a lot of you, I went into this year's draft, in this case, the Tout Wars American League only, with a pitching plan to get one top flight starter, a couple of lesser lights with upside, and a couple of streamers. Then I was going to grab a closer and some Lima type relievers, mostly to help protect my ratios. Has it worked so far? Pretty much. I'm second in the league in ERA, 352, behind leader Eric Simulski's 321, and I'm leading the league in whip. My 1130 is a couple of ticks better than Jason Collette's 1150. So that part of it is actually working pretty swell. But here's the crazy thing about it. With a couple of relatively minor exceptions, it's my starters who've been providing the good decimals and my Lima guys who have been killing me. Let me explain what I mean. I separated my year-to-date pitching stats into starters and relievers and separated their ERAs and whips at the same time. My starters from the draft are Kevin Gosman, Chris Sale, Christian Javier, and wait till you hear this, Michael Lorenzen of Detroit, and they've all been great. Gosman has a 2.76 ERA and a 112 whip. Sale has a 458 ERA, the result of a horrible first start, but a very nice 119 whip. Javier has a 297 ERA and an 099 whip. And Lorenzen, through some judicious streaming, has a 326 ERA and a 102 whip. Taken together, these four have amassed a 336 ERA and 109 whip across 228 innings. Then, during the season, I added Chris Bubich. Bryce Miller, and Tanner Bybee, and they combined for 73 and two-thirds innings of a 379 ERA and 110 whip. I also had Shintaro Fujinami for one start, perhaps one of the most horrendous starts I've ever had on a fantasy team. Let's leave him out of it except to say, imagine how much better my ratios would look without two and two-thirds innings with eight runs and eight base runners. So, add them all up, my starters have just over 300 innings with a 3.46 ERA and a 109 whip. Now, how about those relievers? Coming out of the draft, I had Clay Holmes, a kind of closer, with decent enough skills, and then Lima guys like Trevor Stephan of Cleveland, Eric Swanson of Toronto, John Schreiber of Boston, and maybe a little less lima E, Jorge Lopez of Minnesota, who I was kind of trying to snag some cheap saves from. I expected those five relievers to keep a combined ERA right around 3, maybe a little under if I was lucky, and a whip under 115 or so. Instead, they have an ERA of 3.22, which is a little higher than I was hoping, but still pretty good, but a whip of one hundred twenty-four, which is not helping things one bit. It wasn't quite so bad. I was actually in first place in ERA for a while, but over the last 14 days— Trevor Steffen has a 675 ERA with a 180 whip. Swanson has a 675 ERA with a 113 whip. Pretty much everybody he put on scored because of home runs. Lopez has a 2160 ERA and a 330 whip, and not surprisingly, no saves. And Holmes has been pretty good, 150 ERA, 117 with a save and two wins. Schreiber, he's been on the I.L., I had Phil Maton from Houston, but I waved him a few weeks ago. I still don't remember why. So here's the issue I'm concerned about as I look ahead. I know I've probably lost Chris Sale for a while. We're all still waiting for the MRI. But I'm expecting that I'm going to have to do without him for a while. So I'm going to have to ride these starters probably including Lorenzen and the two rookies, and that makes me nervous. I have Cleveland prospect Gavin Williams still on my reserve list, but I don't know if he'll be able to squeeze into the Cleveland rotation, even though their staff has had injuries. They're bringing back Tristan McKenzie and Aaron Savali maybe this weekend, which will make for a crowded rotation indeed. So, what would you do? Stay the course as is? Ride these starters? cut Lorenzen or one of the kids and replace them with free agent Lima relievers or something else send me your ideas to BHQ radio all one word at gmail.com or tweet them to me and make sure to include my Twitter handle at Patrick Davitt no space no periods nothing like that I'll share whatever advice I get next week for baseballhq.com, I'm Patrick Davitt and I have my extra innings commentary here on baseball HQ radio almost every week And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 2nd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 19 of the 2023 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Vlad Sedler, the Fab Whisperer at FTN Fantasy and co-host of the FTN Fantasy Baseball podcast. Vlad is one of the hardest working guys in our business and one of the most astute analysts. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch News Analyst was Ray Murphy. Our Minor League Minute Commentator was Baseball HQ Scouting Team Member Rob Gordon. And our Frequent Flyer Commentator was Baseball HQ Analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Extra Innings Commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Apple Podcasts or Google Pods, Pocket Cast, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, please let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday full edition, and then the week after, we'll have Rob DiPietro from the Dead Pull Hitter and Launch Angle Podcasts plus all the usual great stuff. Our news analysis and our Baseball HQ commentaries all coming up next Friday on another full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk with you again on Friday, and for now, so long.